I've got another fantastic guest today, Dr. Brian Keating. Let me read you a bit his uh, bio before I turn the floor to him. Distinguished professor of physics at UCSD, author of Losing the Nobel Prize in 2018. We'll talk about that. Host of the podcast, Into the Impossible. We'll talk about that in a second. First, I want to say hello. How are you, Brian? Very good, Gad. It's great to be with you finally. I, indeed. And thank you so much for having had me on. I think it was about six months ago when my book came out. And so I knew that I had to, at the very least, reciprocate it, not make these regular conversations. Now, I did notice something. So I have a, we're going to start off right away with a quibble here. Uh, I, I went to your Wikipedia page and it says, host of the podcast Into the Impossible. Each episode is a long format conversation with Nobel laureates, scientists, writers, and other notable individuals such as Noam Chomsky, Eric Weinstein, Jill Carter, Sarah Seeger. I haven't heard about any of these people ever, most of them. Adam Reese, oh, who could forget Adam Reese? Never heard of him. Frank Wilzek, Barry Barish, Sheldon Glashow, Rainer Weiss, and okay, Roger Penrose, I'll give you, he should be on that list. Most of the others, not so sure. I wonder if you've had any no other notable people who founded disciplines who can't walk down the street every three minutes without being stopped. Can you think of anybody else that could be on that list? Yeah, I did have uh, <clears throat> I did have Dennis Prager on. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's what I expect from Jewish humor. Excellent. Very well done. I set you up for that one. Uh, so nice to talk to you. So much to talk about. Let's start. I guess I'm, I'm looking here at my list of uh, things to talk about. Let's start with your book. I'm afraid I haven't read it yet, but I have a general sense of the thesis. Uh, it's not too long ago, so maybe it's still apropos to talk about it. Losing the Nobel Prize. Tell us about it. So Losing the Nobel Prize is sort of a memoir about what it's like to do actual science, not just the whiz-bang, you know, multiple dimensions and wormholes and black holes and any of the other holes that you inhabit, Gad. Uh, these are the most fascinating things, but you always hear it from these theoretical physicists, the, the Michio Kakus, the Neil deGrasse Tysons, uh, etc. And you never get the perspective of the actual men and women who are building stuff, telescopes, apparatus, particle accelerators. I want to tell that story of what it's like to start off as a young boy, get a telescope, a young Jewish boy getting ready uh, for altar boy services in the Catholic Church in, in upstate New York, where I was uh, preparing for my bar mitzvah as an altar boy. We'll get into that. Uh, my religious... Yes, I really thought that, by the way. And uh, I want to take that through becoming a professional cosmologist, which is what I do. As you can tell, my hair... My makeup is just on point, uh, and I learn everything from you, Gad. I'm, I'm trying to grow a Gad beard. <clears throat> but the point is, uh, cosmology and cosmetology, they share this prefix, and it means something very common to Gad and I, and that means beautiful in Greek, right? Cosmos means beautiful. So the universe is beautiful. And, um, and why not hear from somebody who actually builds the instrumentation that takes us to the edge of our known uh, reasoning about the origin of the universe itself. I always ask people, I'll ask you, Gad, uh, what's the most important day on the calendar to you every year? Every year? Uh, let's see. I mean, of course, I should say my wife's birthday. Yes. Uh, I'll t stop there. Yeah. <laughs> Could or young people. Yep. You know, I don't know. Maybe when Lionel Messi won the Copa America, 
<laughs> but he, do, he doesn't do that every year, right? Although, actually, you're making a good point. So what do people care about? They care about the beginnings of things. They care about origin stories. And that's where the mystery lies. We don't know what came first, the cosmic chicken or the cosmic egg. And that's what I do. I study the origin, the evolution of the universe, whether there are multiple universes, how the smallest entities in the universe connect to the largest aspects of the universe, its scale, its structure, its composition, its evolution. And uh, and whether or not there was a universe that predated ours, or fascinatingly as it could be, Gad, maybe time began with the Big Bang. Maybe there was nothing to answer the question, what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? Though there are some people that say there is an answer to that question, and maybe we'll get into that. So these are the biggest questions. There's a reason the Bible, the Torah, as you call it, <clears throat> the Old Testament, as other people call it, uh, they, there's a reason it starts with with the origin of the universe, right? It, it could have just had, you know, here's what you can eat, here's who you can sleep with, here's who you can't sleep with, uh, you know, uh, here's what to do to the people that sleep with the people that they're not supposed to sleep with. But it didn't. It didn't start with those laws. It started with the origin of the universe. I think that, you know, really belies the fact that our beginnings, cosmic beginnings, your own personal beginning, your wife, your lovely wife's beginning, those are what matter to people. I wanted to explain how it all began. So as an astrophysicist, now again, I, I ask this question for many of our viewers who may not be familiar with, you know, the epistemology of astrophysics. How much of it is, you know, observational, night after night, sitting, using ever more powerful telescopes to test the theory versus all of the theoretical mathematics where you come out of one wormhole, enter a multiverse, all of which, none of it makes any sense to me. So w w what's the breakdown for the typical you know, astrophysicist who wakes up is regular empirical science, hypothesis, testing, refutation or not, versus all the theoretical mumbo jumbo stuff. Yeah, and I, I like the way you say it for your audience that might not be familiar. I know that you have twelve dimensional gauge theory, you know, tattooed on your on your backside. Uh, and that was part of your PhD, your honorary PhD that I gave you here. Um, so exactly. it's the second oldest science. I call it the second oldest science. Not to be confused with the second oldest profession, but the second and I guess what the first one Yes, is, go ahead. Would it just be philosophy? It could be philosophy, but I was in terms of observational science, Gad, it's actually astrology. Embarrassingly enough, astrology is the forefather of astronomy because those people were watching the skies. They were taking data. They had meticulous records. And when I say astrology, you shouldn't think of like the lady who's down with the crystal ball down the, down the street. Um, you should think about uh, you know uh, Johannes Kepler. You should think about some of the greatest emissaries and Isaac Newton dabbled in astrology. So these weren't crackpots as we think of astrologers today. Uh, and yet, they made careful observations. They made hypotheses, right? So their hypothesis by the, you know, by the demarcation theory of Karl Popper uh, would be actually qualifying it as a science because they make falsifiable predictions, right? So, uh, so I think people rely too much on this uh, epistemic, epistemic curiosity, but leading to what I call the paparazzi, you know, where they really are beholden to this notion of falsifiability. So. To answer your question, it starts with observation, but it doesn't end there because the first telescope was only invented 400 years ago. And it was first used by Galileo to turn to the heavens. And then Galileo is also the father of the modern scientific method, which involves you know, two different approaches, deductive and inductive. And we can talk about each one of those. But essentially what we do nowadays is we 
either discover things serendipitously, as in the case in the origin of my field, which is the heat left over from the formation of the elements. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. That was discovered completely by accident. That was completely serendipitous, discovered in New Jersey of all places. <laughs> and if, uh, if you can imagine such a thing. I, I'm a New Yorker, so you, you can tell I like to make fun of people from New Jersey. But, but, um, but the actual precision science of cosmology is less than a half a century old. In other words, we didn't know the age of the universe to within a factor of four. Uh, as long ago as maybe when, when you were in grad school or you know when you were in college, it really wasn't known to very high precision. There were things in the universe believed to be older than the universe itself. A star in a globular cluster could be older than the, than the known age of the universe at that time. So I say it's like you meet a kid and he's older than his father. And there's a story behind that, I'm sure. So it's only recently that cosmology has become a proper precision science. You know, in, uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, one of the things that used to excite me the most was, so I, so I did my undergrad in mathematics and computer science, yep. but I had a whole bunch of electives that I could take throughout my degree on the order typically of at least one course a semester, sometimes depending on how things fell, fell out, maybe two courses. So the first two, three weeks, and I actually discussed this, I don't know if it will remain in the final draft of my next book, but I discussed this when I talk about intellectual variety seeking, you know, uh, surfing through many intellectual landscapes. So I would excitedly wake up every day and just go sit in on a million courses so that I could finally decide on the one or two electives outside of mathematics and computer. I mean, I took stuff I mean I took a ceramics course right mm. I took a French cinema course precisely thinking that I want to be a well-rounded individual you know I, I suck in artistic creation so I wanted to challenge I mean it was easy to take a math course but it wasn't easy for me to do ceramics and so one of the courses that I sat in on and that I ended up taking for credit my I think it was my either my first or second I think it was my second semester as an undergrad was an astrophysics course where we actually had to do uh, nighttime observations, you know, and I think the reason why I know it was the winter semester because it was freezing in Montreal and I was, you know, looking for all these different constellations and I had a great time. So that that's my only formal exposure to astrophysics, but it certainly seemed like a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Gad, you know, you cannot replicate the thrill of discovery of the Higgs boson measured in uh, 2012. So that was a, a you know phenomenon around the world of physics. You cannot replicate the feeling that, that Watson and Crick had when they discovered the double helix structure of DNA. Because you don't happen to have, I mean, I don't see your hands right now, but I don't think you have a large hadron collider over there, and I don't think you have a X-ray crystallographic apparatus there. But every single one of you and your listeners should immediately go out and buy a telescope for a little child in their lives, their children, or their grandchildren and I make Keating brand telescopes for 99 95 99 uh, no I should do that but but anyway you can gad you can have the exact replica of the emotions not only the discoveries but the emotional visceral connection that Galileo had when he discovered the four moons of Jupiter the craters on the surface of our moon the phases of Venus the rings of Saturn in other words, you can replicate the exact feeling of scientific discovery from the very same emotions that the, that the founder of a field of science and of astronomy himself felt. Where else can you get that? You can't really do that anywhere else. Now, uh, as I'm thinking back, in, so in, in, in Quebec, we have a different educational system than in the U.S. In that, so we graduate from high school in grade 11. Right. Then we go to what we call college, which is a separate two-year institution 
where you get a college degree, then you go to university. And in my college degree, I studied pure and applied uh, sciences. Remember, so this is like pre-university, but post high school. Uh, uh, I took a electromagnetic physics course, I took a mechanics course, and I took a waves and optics course, Minkowski diagrams. Am I remembering? Yeah, correctly? that's right. And I, and I love that stuff. But I tell you something, just the way my brain was built, or is built, it, I had a, a lot harder time with the physics problems that involved visualization. So the mechanics stuff uh, was hard for me. Okay, you 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 hit a, a a cannon with this arc, and at what point does it? On the other hand, pure mathematics, closed system, I was able to excel in it. Is this a dichotomy that we see often with physis physicists that some have, you know, spatial intelligence much more so than sort of that pure analytic mind? Yeah, it certainly is the case that some physicists think more mathematically, exclusively mathematically, and those are not the ones you want to get to fix your toaster. You know, by the way, you can go down to Concordia. That's me, by the way. <laughs> I can't fix anything. My wife can take an empty can of tuna and uh, sugar and turn it into a rocket that visits Jupiter. <laughs> I can't change the battery on my on my remote control. I'm like, wonder, where does this go? Yep. Don't know. You would fit in well in the theoretical physics department at uh, Concordia. I'm sure you'll you'll be able to get over there. Um, so yes, there are there is a big dichotomy. But you know, I also feel like we don't do a good enough job teaching the controversy. You hear that a lot. Teach the controversy. Maybe we'll get into evolution later. But but teaching the con you're an expert in that. But this is a different kind of controversy. So what's the classic physics intro 101 class at most universities? Take a ball. It's rolling down an inclined plane. And 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 that's like mind-numbingly boring. But only recently, as I've come upon taking upon for the first time in human history to make the first ever audiobook of Galileo Galilei's dialogue, do I realize that we're doing it wrong? So it's never been done. I had to do it for a PragerU course I was doing with Michael Knowles. Um, I had to reread the dialogue, which I hadn't read. I never finished it. And I was like, hmm, let me do what I do with Gad's books and, and download the Audible copy. And everybody should do that, right? Uh, but there is no Audible copy. It doesn't exist. So I, with my Italian friend Carlo Rovelli, who's a renowned physicist and, and author, and my good friend Lucio Picciarillo, we were recording the first ever dialogue. It's really a trialogue between three characters. Wow. And I'm reading it, and I'm like... God, he was such a great writer, and I'll read you some of his things, because he basically discovered the Dunning-Kruger effect and all these other things that we take for granted. He has... Dunning was my professor at Cornell, by the oh, way. Oh, really? Okay. I'm the... Wor yeah, I know more about the... Yeah, I know more about the Dunning-Kruger effect than anybody. Um, you know, I, I studied it for five minutes. Uh, but this... Uh, but Galileo, in that book, he's talking about why he discovered, why he uses this inclined plane, what it's good for, and in so doing, you could tie it into the controversy that surrounds him that he was basically imprisoned because of this book, that he was uh, effectively asked under penalty of torture. He was never tortured, but he was asked under penalty of torture to recant the Aristotelian, to recant the Copernican theory that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. And this controversy is still, you know, not really understood by many people, but imagine teaching that. Okay, Galileo had to invent this inclined plane thing that you find so boring because he was imprisoned in a small cell in his house. 
all these wonderful ways to teach it. We just do it wrong. But to answer your question, yes, there are people that think purely theoretically. There are some that do computational physics and can't do experiment. And then there are people like me who build telescopes, detector systems, cryogenic systems, vacuum systems, take them to space or take them to the South Pole, Antarctica, where losing the Nobel Prize takes place, or uh, to Chile, where my current project takes me. <clears throat> and we explore the universe from the world's extremes in order to unlock the mysteries of what it was like, perhaps, in the first moments of time's existence. Gad, have you ever thought about that? How can time progress when it comes into existence at a particular moment in time? It, it's really uh, quite fascinating, and we're studying that very phenomenon with the projects that I'm working on today. Do you, are physicists, given that some of the questions that they tackle are beyond sort of human comprehension. I don't know if on your show we had discussed this, but Richard Dawkins talks about middle world. Are you familiar with that term? Do you vaguely. Know what he's talking about? No, vaguely. Yeah. So, 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 so the nano world is are the things that happen at, at a scale that is incomprehensible to the human mind, right? Uh, the cosmological world is at a scale that is incomprehensible to the human. So we operate on a scale, whether it be time scale or physical scale, that is ideally suited for our evolved mind. And things that are too nano or too uh, mega become yeah. very difficult for us to understand, right? It's true, and, yeah. And, which, which makes perfect sense. Now, so, but given that some, given that we are violating middle world when we study, you know, cosmological issues of Big Bang and so on, does that cause most physicists to become, you know, more open to religious narratives? Because, my goodness, there is such a, you know, magisterial world out there that I really understand what an insignificant speck that I am. Or, to the contrary, it only makes me more dogmatic in my antipathy towards uh, religion. Well, yeah. So I would say that 90% of my colleagues, probably like 90% of yours, are not particularly curious about these big picture issues. In other words, they're really into the code, they're really into the equations, they're really into the experiment, the detectors, the apparatus, the optics. Uh, they don't stop as much as maybe I'm, I do too much of this to consider the big picture narrative, why I got interested in cosmology from the beginning. And I think I actually think that relates to like um, uh, to to Ernest Becker's denial of death. Like, in other words, we just like we know we're going to die. Oh, it's not going to happen to us, and we have infinite amount of time in the future to think about the big picture things. Let me get this resistor, you know, actually, you know, soldered in place, and or let me get this equation and submit it to the publisher. And so we're not really thinking of you know we're distracted by the quotidian instead of the really magisterial, as you say. Um, so most don't really think about it so much, and then those that do tend to write books about it. And then sometimes we overhype it and talk about yeah the the you know the wormhole the uh, multiple universes and so forth. So uh, it's hard to find the middle ground, as you, as Dawkins would say, when it comes to you know the big picture versus the small picture. But I don't think uh, I, I know for a fact that almost none of my colleagues are practicing religion at all. Um, I know I'm one of the rare ones that that do. Uh, but but there are there are people. You know, who are kind of the opposite side. I've had Lawrence Krauss on recently, and he's, you know, wrote this book, A Universe from Nothing, which Dawkins wrote the afterward to that compared it to, to Darwin's Origin of Species, in that it does, you know, allegedly does for origin, uh, for, for, you know, for evolution of the universe, what Darwin did for evolutionary biology, which I took issue with, and I think even, even Lawrence was embarrassed by, but nevertheless, it's in the, it's in the book. He didn't recant it or anything. Uh, so I thought that was a little overblown, but, um, but, that was really kind of a, a partially written you know, document. That book was written to undermine the need for God. For what does God 
have a necessity for God to instantiate the universe, you know, the Big Bang, and then to inculcate the universe with laws. And so there are, is currently uh, a two-pronged attack from people that are secular, and that is to remove the, the need for an initial condition, for an initial origin of the universe, to have a banger in the Big Bang. It can originate, as Krauss titled his book, from nothing, no thing. And then for, uh, as far as the instantiation of laws of physics, you have uh, Stephen Hawking and others with so-called M theory or string theory, which, you know, I don't have to tell you about, you know, all the intricacies of string theory. You're, you've, you're written manifold on, on that. But, but I'm, a, I'm a master of string theory. <laughs> so, uh, so these are taking away and obviating the need for God, according to these secular uh, scientists. So very few people are, and it really hasn't been so. Uh, which is quite amazing. For thousands of years, people thought the universe, a scientist claimed the universe was infinite, eternal, static, unchanging. Uh, from Aristotle to Einstein. Actually, Einstein didn't believe in the Big Bang for many, many years until he was shown inex inescapable uh, scientific evidence from Edwin Hubble that the universe was expanding, so that implied in previous epochs it was closer, smaller, compactified. Um, and yet, uh, they, they believe this even though the Torah, as I said before, begins in the beginning, God, you know, let there be light, creation of everything. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we've come full circle in a certain sense that now all the scientists believe there was a beginning. Most of the scientists believe there was a single beginning. Not all, but most. And, uh, and, and very few of them believe that it was eternal, static, and unchanging. Uh, and yet they preserve their secular adherence to philosophical or theological questions. Very interesting. What is the current uh, accepted wisdom amongst the physicist community mm -hmm. in terms of so the so it is absolutely in, uh, unassailable that the the universe is expanding? Is that is that true? yes? It's not it's not okay. So that's there's no debate. That's there. not that's right. It has been expanding okay. yes for the last five thousand seven hundred and eighty. No, it's been expanding. We know it's been expanding for thirteen point seven nine eight billion years with an uncertainty gad of less than uh, uh, at the percent level. In other words, we know from the aid, not the beginning of time. So it's interesting. I think that people should consider more the Big Bang, not as the origin of time, not as the origin of space, but simply, with simply in quotes, the origin of matter. And that distinction makes a big difference because we physicists, as, as Dawkins was saying, and you were quoting Dawkins' name, uh, you know, we're kind of midway between the largest scales in the universe and the smallest scales in the universe. But that's not true. It's, it's, not, it's, it's true in what's called logarithmic terms. In other words, if you take the logarithm, the exponent to which the size of the universe in meters is measured, it's like 10 to the 30th meters. Let's just say the size of the observable universe is 10 to the 30th uh, uh, meters. So a one with 30 zeros after it in meters. You can't, can't comprehend it. And an atom... Uh, Gad is about 10 to the minus 30 centimeters in uh, in size. So it's our meters in size. So it's so that logarithm is minus 30, and on that same scale comes man at about one meter. Okay, your case two and a half meters. I, I know you exactly. you give you give LeBron a, a run for his money in terms of height and 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 uh, intellect. Did you see my slow motion? Dunk? Yes. Did you see that? Thing? That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's easy. You're two meters tall. So anyway, but uh, so so there is man logarithmically equal between the smallest and the largest scales. You know, plus thirty minus thirty divided by two is about zero. That's one meter. Um, and so that's a pro that's where we sit in physics terms. We don't think in terms of years. We think about logarithmic time. So in other words, we understand the universe when it was about three minutes old, all the way forward to today. 
But there's an infinite number of, of, of real numbers between three minutes and zero <laughs> if there was a zero. So what I implore people to think about is not the Big Bang created time, created the universe. All that we know is that that marks the beginning of our ignorance going backwards in time. In other words, we can go from today and predict the large-scale forces, fields, energy, distribution, etc., all the way backwards until you get to 13 billion years minus three minutes. But then what happens before that is the subject of wild speculation. So the zero to three minutes is where St. Aquinas lives. That's right. Correct? And Edward Witten and uh, you know, Lawrence Krauss. And, uh, and there might be Stephen Hawking and, and others have said that that, that zero is a, is a hard boundary. You cannot ask what happened, according to Stephen Hawking, before time equals zero any more than you can ask what lies north of the North Pole. And I always say, well, Santa Claus, is, he's like, up, oh, no, no. But, uh, but what's north of the North Pole is not a mathematically sensible question because it marks the terminus of a coordinate system. But there are people, such as my good friend uh, Neil Turok, who's at Perimeter Institute, and, and Paul Steinhardt, who's the Einstein professor at, at Princeton University, and they claim there's a very good answer to what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang, and it's, it was the previous universe collapsing and, and rebounding in a relatively gentle fashion to create a universe that we observe today. So there. Okay, so that that sentence, that statement, one universe collapsing. How much of that is pure bullshit speculation? Give me a sec. So, so there's a quotient. There's zero to a hundred. Okay. So let me contextualize. Men are taller than women. That's an empirical statement. We can falsify or not. I'm going to give it a score of a hundred. Okay. okay? Where does your your one universe collapse on the other enter on the bullshit portion zero to one hundred? It depends on how you identify as the universe, male or female. Uh, so um, so let's take a step back. So e they have equal amounts of bullshit at some level because they both rely on unproven, unseen assumptions, as almost all things do in science, right? You know, you can't see the quarks inside of an atom. You know, you can't directly detect them. It's a question that's in principle not answerable. Um, so there is and is not a human bias that comes into play into which is more palatable. A universe that came out of literally nothing, a, a figurative, actually I should say figuratively nothing, because there was pre-existing mathematics, there was pre-existing laws of physics, there was pre-existing scalar quantum fields, um, and, and the dimensionality of space was confined and constricted in those models that posit there was a single moment of zero time. And then there are models that posit a collapsing universe, which could be infinitely num numerical and cycles forever, cycling into and out of collapse and expansion. Or it could be we just caught the lucky break. There was one universe exactly that collapsed. We don't know where that came from. And then that collapse bounced and now created our universe. And that relies on scalar fields, quantum mechanics, classical general relativity. Um, but in that case, at least those could exist and maybe you could say they exist for all time. So there are problems in physics that are unanswerable. In other words, there are galaxies right now, Gad, that this every orthodox uh, you know, astronomer believes in, any, any astronomer worth his or her salt, right? There's a galaxy right now that's moving away from us at faster the speed, than the speed of light. That is happening. We observe... Nothing moves faster than the speed of light. No. Nothing, can transmit inf not nothing can transmit information faster than the speed of light. But if space itself is expanding faster than the speed of light, then we are moving away from those objects at faster than the speed of light, and they can shoot a light beam at you that will never reach you. 
So there, it's like running on a treadmill. That treadmill is going too fast in recession for the sound waves or whatever are throwing a baseball at you. It will never reach you. So there, that is, galaxy is forever cut off from our vision. We'll never be able to see what happened to that poor galaxy way over there. Uh, but on the other hand, we can make uh, assumptions about how did it get into that current configuration. So that's where we're at. There is a firewall in this sense that there are things that are moving away. There are uh, observations that we cannot make. Um, so-called singularities or event horizons is the proper way to describe it. Those are things beyond which you can't see directly and will never get, but you have to ask, are there other sources of information? You remember when you lived here that there's a Pacific Ocean, right? So you can go out in the Pacific Ocean and you can go deep, far away from Santa Catalina, you know, halfway to Hawaii. You can't see anything. Um, but so how do you know Hawaii exists? Well, you know, you have to think about that. You know, are there signals from Hawaii that I could get? Yes. If a volcano erupts and it emits a tsunami wave, it will eventually come to my boat or wherever I am, and I'll observe some signal. But that is not in the form of electromagnetic radiation. It's in the form of some other medium, in this case, what are called waves of, of hydro, hydrostatic waves. And so in those waves will then communicate the presence of a landmass. And if you're really good, you can compute the shape of it, the structure, how big was the volcano, the tsunami. So... You have to use other senses and you have to use theoretical models to do that, to do that reconstruction of an event that your eyes can't see. That's where we're stuck. We're stuck at looking for pieces of evidence. There's a problem. You could, in principle, falsify the existence of Hawaii. You know, if you did it very carefully, you could say, oh, there's actually, it's either too far away, it's lost in the noise, etc. But there are models of cosmology that predict an origin of the universe that are not possible to be proven wrong. They could only be proven right. In other words, you could only ascertain their existence. So they, sorry, so they fail the, the Popper's falsification principle, so they're not within the realm of science? What, what is that? Well, again, so I am not a worshiper of Popper. I am not a member of the paparazzi. I believe that there are multiple lines of evidence. Actually, as did Popper, interestingly enough, you, you probably know this, but Popper didn't think that falsifiability was the sine qua non of true science. He thought that was an element of it. And I would agree it, it's an element of it. But I want to take you back to uh, 1864, uh, which neither one of us remembers. But uh, 1864, there was a young... Uh, 100 years, sorry, 100 years before the most important year to mankind, 1964. That's right where someone truly special was born. But yeah, that's right. That's right. My, my older brother. How did you know? Uh, but the, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the physicist working at that time, his name was James Clerk Maxwell, and he came up with the laws of electromagnetism that unified, for the first time in human history, two completely disparate phenomena. The phenomena of like static electric shocks that you get or you know, a current flowing through a wire and magnetic fields, the stuff of magnets and bar magnets and, and things like that and compasses and stuff like that. He said they're actually two sides of the same coin. That's called unification. We're still trying to do that. And what was his model of the universe at that time, Gad? He had these four famous equations. He would have won multiple Nobel Prizes had he lived, you know, even 50 years later. He died very young. Uh, unfortunately, he died in, uh, at age uh, 40 something. But anyway, uh, this observation that he made was predicated on the existence of what's called the ether. Uh, basically, some substance, because they couldn't conceptualize how a wave of electromagnetic light could move without something for it to wave within. 
And he conjectured there are these little tiny gears and pulleys in space and whirlpools. So imagine him on Twitter, Gad. Imagine Twitter in 1864. I've got this great model. It makes all this great predictions. And, you know, oh, what's it based on? Oh, it's got these whirlpools. And blah, blah. and then so Popper, had he been alive, would have said, okay, um, we can zoom in with a microscope. We don't see any evidence. And actually, Michelson and Morley at my institution, Case Western, my undergraduate institution, they falsified the existence of the ether. They would have thrown that whole Maxwellian baby out with the bathwater, and we would have been the poorer for it. So don't rely too much on Popper's falsification, at least not at first. So there may be models that we're testing today that could be perfectly kosher and sound, but we just don't know yet because observers and experimentalists haven't had the capability to detect or test them yet. And what, so, I mean... In my work, I use many different methodologies to test the hypothesis. So let me see if I get a general sense of how the astrophysicist does it, and then you'll, you'll correct me. Yep. So one approach would be, so what earlier you mentioned these four different options. I don't remember what they were. The, the gravity, not the, the field. field mm -hmm. field. Yeah. The yeah, there's uh, all these different uh, mm -hmm. alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. So one way would be to say, okay, if... Uh, theory A is right, I should be able to observe somewhere in the sky and this is the pattern that I should write. If, if theory B is right, this is what I should expect, which would be very clearly different than pattern A. So that would be the observational astrophysics approach to testing between competing theories. Now, if I were doing the theoretical approach, it would be simply within a closed system where I start with a set of premises and I either arrive to sort of a QED theorem or not. By the way, if I'm right, I do feel that I should at least be getting a master's in physics at this point. But go ahead. Am I, am I, am I on the right track yeah. or am I totally off? Yeah, so the, the challenge comes for the first time in human history that one of the models has a concomitant feature called the multiverse. In other words, these two competing theories, one of an eternal uh, cyclical universe, or maybe even not eternal, but semi-infinite, you know, going to the future, um, and then one of an, a single moment of creation, cosmogenesis, cosmogony. And those are in co uh, diametrical opposition. Um, they have similar features. At some, uh, obviously, they have to reproduce the data today. And so that's a boundary condition. So in physics and science, we always have initial conditions. How did the pendulum start swinging? And that will tell you all its future prediction, unless it's a chaotic double, you know, whatever. Um, and you need to know the boundary conditions. It's on Earth. It has a certain length of the pendulum, etc. So in cosmology, we have co boundary conditions and we have initial conditions. The boundary conditions today are very well prescribed uh, in terms of how much you could change your theory at early times and still get the same observable effect with galaxies and clusters and dark matter and light matter, whatever. Um, but one of those two theories, the theory of inflation, has manifestly a component of it called the multiverse, meaning that the only way for there to be uh, the, uh, the observed properties that kick off our universe, that started expanding, finely tune it so that it will have the right level of expansion, not too much, not too little, not too hot, not too cold, kind of Cinderella uh, universe. Uh, that has to only be plausible in a universe, in a greater universe called the multiverse, in which there's all the possibilities for the laws of nature, all different values of the speed of light, the mass of the electron, the, the size of the quarks, etc., the forces of nature. In other words, you need an infinite number of spectra of these different possibilities. In one of those universes, at least, it'll have just the right properties to generate us. This is called the weak anthropic principle. Are you, is that the fine-tuning argument? Is that the fine? -tuning? That's one of the fine. There's many fine-tuning arguments in, in, in cosmology 
in astronomy, and that's what I like about it. Uh, but, uh, but in this case, that fine-tuning cannot be accomplished without a greater space of universes, according to its creators, Alan Guth and Andre Linde and others, called the multiverse. And that then allows for the particular instantiation of the conditions that we see around us to have a universe as old as ours, not, not collapse on its own uh, mass density, not expand too tenuously so that we're not even able to observe anything. All these different forces and fields and features, those come, as I say, concomitantly with the presence of the multiverse. But now you might say, well, the multiverse is that really part of science because the multiverse is saying that no matter what you observe, it's consistent with some prior past history of some universe and, uh, and, and particularly, and so it's just really this, this uh, you know, accident of monkeys typing on keyboards or, or what have you, that it will be eternal at least to the, to, the, to the future. It may even be eternal to the past. In other words, you might have the multiverse, which when you and I were kids, that was the whole universe, right? That was everything there was. That was the, we called that object the universe. Now, no, no, no. There are universes embedded within a bigger space of all the mathematical points in space and time. Uh, that could conceivably exist to infinity in all directions and to all times, perhaps. So that has a big problem because that's not any measurement you get is consistent with some universe. So your observations have no predictive power. And that's the chief complaint among many of the detractors of inflation, which is the dominant paradigm. Inflation is like the evolution you know, it's like the evolutionary theory uh, of cosmology in a certain sense. It is believed to be, by many, the best candidate for understanding our early universe. It has one other prediction, which is my specialization, looking for this particular pattern or what are called gravitational waves. So if you shake up space and time hard enough, you will get out vibrations in the fabric of the coordinate system, the coordinate space in time. It will reverberate. So these are called gravitational waves. They were first detected directly by LIGO, this experiment operating in Washington State and Louisiana in 2015, and they won the Nobel Prize in 2017. And those, uh, those waves were from two black holes colliding together at half the speed of light in a quarter of a, of a, of a second. Now imagine all the matter in the universe you know, exploding faster than the speed of light for a very brief instantaneous amount of time almost, that would create even more gravitational waves. Those waves are, in principle, observable by telescopes that my colleagues and I are building. So if we observe those waves, it would be almost, you know, circum circumstantial evidence beyond any reasonable doubt that would then falsify the other model, which predicts zero gravitational waves. In other words, the cyclic model says, no, 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 you'll never see a gravitational wave. So that model can be falsified, check in Popper's favor for that model, but inflation can't be proven because it may have been that inflation took place but didn't produce enough gravitational waves for us to see. In which case, now you're relying on like social proof, as I say. <laughs> you know, at that level, it's very difficult to, to know where cosmology can possibly go from there. So that... That kind of terrifying prop, uh, possibility is what keeps me up at night as a, an experimentalist. Uh, two questions. One, you mentioned, and you, you kind of predicted my next uh, segue. You mentioned the evolution of cosmology, which reminded me earlier, you mentioned the Perimer, uh, Perimeter Institute. Well, I had Lee Smolin on as a guest several years ago. Precisely because I had discovered his work in the following way. So as you know, I think we discussed it on your show, uh, Brian. Uh, I'm a huge consilience guy, yes. right? I, my brain, right, in the same way that I can't uh, put together the batteries in a, uh, you know, in a remote control, 
I'm a huge synthetic thinker. I'm I'm I'm, I'm looking for for links between so so I think I would be the perfect guy to crack the theories of everything problem. You know. So so well, one day I was writing a, a something about all of the different areas that have been Darwinized, mm. you know, from the smallest scale to the large scale. So, for example, I Darwinized the field of human behavior right. and of consumer behavior. And so as I went up the units, of, I got to someone who is applying Darwinian theory at the cosmological scale, where there's a Darwinian competition between multiverses. I had no idea what it means, but I said, oh, I have to speak to this guy. So tell us, Lee Smolin, quack or is he onto something? Because I have no idea what he's talking about other than that there is some sort of selection amongst universes. Yeah, so there's cosmic Darwinism, which Lee has lately grown a little bit less sanguine upon uh, thanks to observations, thanks to uh, good data, and he's an excellent scientist. So he's come up with many foundational contributions to elementary or what we call fundamental uh, physics, and yet um, he is not as wedded to his you know, the, the brain children that he spawned as, say, I would be. In other words, he's very um, not attached, dispassionate, non-reluctant to, you know, make make them go away if the evidence compels him otherwise. So, which is which is a fundamental uh, trait to have epistemic humility. He right. puts something out there. If the data doesn't support it, he walks away. From that's it. right. And uh, whereas you know, a lesser you know, mind such as mine would would probably not be so inclined to do so. But you know, I'm getting better uh, because his uh, his theory is not so in vogue. It doesn't mean that necessarily some of the ideas encoded within it don't tell us something. Um, perhaps startling about about universes themselves, which in some sense might relate to either the anthropic principle or Darwinism. And the basic conjecture was that, um, to put it simply, that uh, the, the kind of properties and abundances of what are called black holes are determinative or predictor, predictive of the fecundity of the universe. In other words, a universe that has a certain distribution of black holes, and they can take on sizes from the microscopic to the megascopic, uh, and they, they can have properties uh, very much in common with one another. They only have three properties. They have uh, mass, they have their charge, and they have their spin. Otherwise, they're a commodity. They're like, uh, they're fungible. You, you can trade any black hole of a given mass spin and charge for any other black hole of that exact same three properties only. And so he said, well, what about the distribution of the abundances of those three parameters in a universe would give it certain properties? So just as a simple example, a universe that had a tremendous amount of supermassive black holes, what are called primordial black holes, would be a stillborn universe. It would be so dense that it would never start expanding. It would never start cooling, even if it had all the matter and energy that our universe has, but a, a tremendous excess of black holes, it would never have the uh, ability to create, uh, to create the kind of uh, uh, profligate universe that we seem to observe. And uh, conversely, if there are too few black holes, we believe at the core of every galaxy in the universe, there is a supermassive black hole. There is a, a black hole of uh, immense proportions, uh, even more than the amount of weight that you lost in the last few years. By the way, I think that you and I have a, more than that. You and I have a have a have a correlation. We're we're known as as these you know kind of spooky action at a distance because between Gad and myself, we conserve mass. 
we can serve mass. So, so your coat. I lose it. That's right. Yeah. So, so the so the net you can't destroy fat in the universe. So between the two of us, a handsome gentleman. Um, so a universe that didn't have enough black holes would not have galaxies. We believe galaxies are necessary uh, for life, and and this proposal is called life in the cosmos. And so it's it might be construed as kind of another anthropic argument, but but he went through, and that was sort of his his thought. But then recently, it's been discovered by this LIGO experiment, this Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory, that my friends, you know, uh, Ray Weiss and Barry Barish and Kip Thorne, who you know and studied under, yes. studied under for a few minutes, uh, that these uh, these these great men and their team. They discovered um, that they believe that he Lee now thinks there may be too many big black holes than predicted. In other words, the universe might not have exactly the same principles for survival of the fittest universe in terms of the distribution mass spin charge of black holes within it. So that that's the extent of of you know what Lee is arguing there. As I say. Recent discoveries have made him maybe sour slightly on it. Uh, he discussed that on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I think the jury's still out about that. It's certainly a provocative idea, and I, I, I like I like provocative ideas. <laughs> uh, so quick question about black holes, and then I'll come back. I said I said earlier I have two yeah. questions when you finish speaking, and I remember what the second one was. Uh, I had once heard, and I'm not sure if it's a wives' tale, but you you tell me if the if the size size is correct. That for us to have a black hole, let's say on Earth, it, you would have to condense the weight of Earth to the size of a dime. Does that make sense? Uh, you you have to take the mass of the Earth and collapse it to the dimensions of a dime. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. about right. Yeah, are you? Is there any danger of that happening, Gad? I mean, are your powers are your powers that resplendent? I mean, possibly. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention before I I uh, I ask you my second question. Because you mentioned earlier 10 to the minus 30 for the atom, 10 to the 30, and so on. Well, uh, so the number that I've often heard about the number of elements in the universe is 10 to the 80. Is that right? I, uh, no, there's only 112 elements on the periodic table, but I think okay. you're talking about the number of elementary particles. So photons and protons and croutons. Yes, exactly. Croutons, exactly. 10 to the 80, correct? Pro approximately, yes. I once was sitting at a cafe in Ithaca, New York. I obtained my PhD at the top Ivy League. People who can't go to Cornell University end up going to places like Brown That's University. That's right, that's right. So, so when I was sitting at Cornell University uh, with a PhD in chemistry, being the utter geeks that we were, we actually calculated, I swear to God, I don't know if I could replicate mm -hmm. this, but using Avogadro's number and so on, we calculated to 10 to the 79 that number. Oh my God! Another master's degree. Another sad degree. Oh, this is incredible. Let me. Let That's what I wanted. I wanted to see if there was a way that you could finagle another PhD. But, but, but I'm being serious. We literally. I will. I will. I want to ask you the final exam question, though. If you had, if you can conceive of um, ten to the twenty-third um, avocados, what would that be called? What would that be called? That number. Is that a play on Avogadro's number? It's Avocado's number. Really it's Avocado's number. And you know what you get when you have an Avocado's number? You have one guacamole. Guacamole. All right. Oh, All right, Nick. Oh, my God. Okay, question two. Physics. Yeah. Uh, question two. How much of the phenomena yet to be discovered are due to methodological 
technological obstacle, right? So until we could come up with more powerful telescopes, it limits how much we can observe. Right? Yeah. So and you would think that astrophysics would, would be, that, I mean, that question would be really, very relevant for, for that. So where are we? So for example, if I ask you, like, you know how, it, I think it was, was it Hilbert? hundred years ago, they came up, here are the top 10 mathematics questions. So if I were to ask you, what are the top 10 astrophysics questions? How many of them have we not been able to answer them? Not because of any, you know, their their NP complete problems. My God, I'm throwing stuff from there. I love it. I love it. But, but really because of methodological constraints. What would be the answer to that? Well, I think it's interesting. So the man who coined the term a black hole was named John Archibald Wheeler. He was Feynman's advisor at Princeton uh, and so forth. So this, um, this, this man, he also came up with a wonderful analogy. He said, science is like an island in, the, uh, in a giant ocean. So there's the island. And as you make the island bigger, the area of the island increases. But the boundary of our ignorance, if, if the ocean is the ignorance and the island is the island of knowledge, the boundary of the ocean-island interface, that grows too. But um, mathematically, the area of something grows as the radius squared, and the boundary just goes as the radius of a circle, for example. And so you win, but you kind of win slower than the size of the uh, would imply, the area would imply. So... In, in terms of this, the more that's truly why the more we know, we do catch glimpses of boundaries beyond a horizon of which we know nothing, or we may, we may not know anything for quite some time. So there's theoretical, and then there's experimental a answers to your question. I think in experiment, it's much easier for me to say, because we can make predictions, we can understand progress, Moore's law, computational science coming online, maybe artificial intelligence helping out augmenting machine learning, uh, and new tools that weren't available to Feynman or Einstein or Galileo. And then there are the telescopes, the tools, the technology that, that LIGO measured a something, a, a perturbation in space and time traveling at the speed of light that changes the separation between two distant, four kilometer distant mirrors by less than a billionth of the width of the, of the proton. I mean, this is unheard. Einstein thought all these things that he predicted would never be observable. Black holes, gravity, bending, space-time, uh, gravitational. He said, oh, these are crazy. I'll just do it for some friend. And he, he submitted these papers to NatureGAD. They weren't papers. They were just letters. And now they got published. And, like, back then, those are the good old days. There's no peer review before, like, 1950 or something like that, uh, when the journals started to come and become more active, uh, apparently. So... Anyway, this, this point is, uh, is well taken. In technology, never make a prediction. You're almost always wrong when an elder, but yeah, as Arthur C. Clarke said, when an elder, but, you know, but, but wise scientist says something is, uh, is possible, he's almost always right. And if he says something's impossible, he's almost always wrong. Uh, and I think, you know, in this case, that can apply both, um, you know, bilaterally to, to experiment and to theory. And in theory, I think there's no, there's, there's very little ability to predict when we will have an epistemic closure, as you say, when we'll have an understanding of even where the horizon uh, leads us. Because you hear things all the time, like a theory of everything, uh, and you hear that talked about, like, we're almost there. And my friend and, and, and uh, you know, um, podcast guest, Michio Kaku, wrote this book called The God Equation, in which he concludes with the same words that Stephen Hawking concluded A Brief History of Time with, which is that once we get the theory of everything, we will know the mind of God. And Gad, but in this case, the the uh, the mind of God meant is a shorthand for we'll know everything will become like gods, right? And I think that's preposterous, and I think that's hubristic, 
And so for those reasons, uh, the answer to your question bifurcates. It's yes, an experiment. We can glimpse where we need to go. We can come up with ideas for telescopes and technologies to probe subatomic scales over the cosmic length scale for events that happened a billion years ago. We're detecting. It's unbelievable what my colleagues are capable of. On the theoretical side, it's almost too perilous to predict. Wow, what an amazing answer. Okay, so uh, since we're talking about some of these great physicists, one of whom I think has been mentioned a few times, uh, Richard Feynman, one of the things that I, I read, by the way, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman, yeah. and I fantastic book. I mean, what an unbelievable book. And by the way, someone who went to Cornell also, I think, uh, as an assistant. He was, yeah. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And if I may say, your biological dad went to Cornell too. He was a youngest tenured full professor of math at Cornell at age 26. No way. Oh my God. So then how, so there must be a reason why you didn't come out to be as great as him. That's right. right. Yeah. Well, I didn't get into Cornell. <laughs> no, but seriously. Uh, so Feynman, one thing that used to really piss me off about him is there's this famous uh, clip that goes around where you know he's saying, "Wow, social science, yeah, it's bullshit." Social science, right? Uh, now, take someone like Auguste Comte. I don't know if you know him. He came up with the hierarchy of the sciences. He was a sociologist, and he actually argued. I mean, using the nomenclature of you know whatever, 100, 200 years ago, whenever he came up with his uh, hierarchy of the sciences, he put sociology at the top. Contrary to what we think of today, sociology was completely parasitized by idea pathogens and activism and so on. He said it's a lot harder to study sociological systems involving human beings than it is to study, you know, what Brian, I mean, we didn't say Brian Keating, of course, but, but studying, you know, uh, you know, the crystallography of something or, or, or the, the cosmos. So what's your position? Of course, for me, and not because I'm trying to play things outside, I think it's a profoundly insulting thing to argue that one science is, is superior to another. The scientific method can be applied to any area of inquiry. So, for example, you could be a historian, which typically falls under the humanities, but you are actually a scientific historian. There is data out there that you can collect that either allows you to falsify or not your hypothesis about some historical phenomenon. Literature, right? So literature would be the epitome of something that is in the humanities, that is not scientific. It's still an intellectual, but there is a field called Darwinian literary criticism, mm -hmm. where you study liter literary narratives around the world and across time and space to show that there are some fundamental universal themes, evolutionary themes, that drive much of literature. And you would be using very sophisticated scientific tools so the idea that, you know, a physicist, because, you know, he uses words like uh, multiverse or a physicist because he's wearing a, uh, a, a white lab coat or, you know, there's a Bunsen burner, that just seems sciencey. But, you know, come on, Dr. Saad, you study consumer psychology. I mean, what are you, some kind of marketeer? What kind of bullshit is that, right? So... Where do you fall on this? And I say this, I mean, I think I know your answer. Your answer, I, I hope, would be much more to, you know, being inclusive of all intellectual endeavors. But yet Richard Feynman, who seemed to be a very cool guy, was very haughty towards those great unwashed bullshit social scientists down there. 
Where do you fit in all this? How do you view it? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question. I, um, you and I are not familiar with this, but there's a concept of penis envy. Um, and yes. in, uh, in the sciences, there's a concept of physics envy. And the physics envy... Um, Economists are from it bad. Exactly. And then what do physics, uh, physicists have envy about mathematics? Because um, for one thing, I told you that it's controversial whether or not one can really truly ascribe Popper's demarcation hypothesis that, that something counts, counts as science if and only if it can be falsified. By the way, do you know what he was really inveying against when he came up with those two, uh, when he came up with that criterion, Gad? Uh, I'm wondering. I don't. Tell me about it. He was inveying against uh, psychology, you know, in particular uh, Freudian dream interpretation and Marxist dialectic materialism. He believed both of those were so flexible that, and you couldn't run the experiment again, say just Marxism, like, well, let's run the whole planet again and does it start with collectivism and then move its way or what? I don't even know these Marxists. It was funny, Gad, the other day my, my kids were in the car and we were talking about, you know, your favorite politician, Bernie Sanders, not far away from where you are. And, uh, and we were talking about how he um you know how he kind of has some you know communist leanings and so forth but um but nevertheless you know he would uh he would you know kind of fit in good in in, in some of the uh past uh, stalinist regimes uh, shall we say and one of my sons said you know um bernie sanders but he's jewish he doesn't he can't like communism and then and then my other son said you idiot the guy who founded communism is a jew <laughs> I was very proud at that moment, Gad, I have to tell you. How old were the two sons who said this? One is 10, and uh, the one who said he can't be a communist was, is only 8. Uh, so the 10-year-old... Well, i got to get my kids more. They're behind your kids. I'm not happy. Okay, okay, that. good. Yeah, we gotta, we'll got we'll have a, a parenting podcast next time. Uh, but uh, but so, so here was you know this, this notion that you couldn't falsify, and yet... Not as I said, there are people that believe Popper is a nutcase, Lenny Susskind and, and other people, um, and even Popper wasn't super consistent himself. He he thought the steady state was a was a wonderful concept for many years, um, and and that's fine. We all have prejudices as scientists. We all have confirmation bias, propensity, um, and, and so forth. So what do we envy uh, mathematicians about? And you'll know this. Gödel has an incompleteness theorem. He has an ability to tell mathematicians, don't work on this. It's like the equivalent of a perpetual motion machine at the patent office. It's a waste of your time. It can't be solvable. It's exactly right. It's, uh, there are frameworks within mathematics where, which are internally inconsistent. And Gödel, by the way, found like the, a loophole in the U.S. Constitution that he was going to tell his immigration supervisor about. And Einstein said, eh, you don't want to do that. Like, the, fact that you can, yeah. the fact that you can amend the Constitution meant that it was internally inconsistent because you could make an amendment that's – anyway – um, so Gödel has this framework that what constitutes um, mathematics and what constitutes the limits of mathematics. We don't have that in physics. So, uh, you know, all the more so does a biologist not have an ability to kind of come up with a fundamental theory that demarcates what is biological versus non-biological. I mean, I had a guy in the podcast the other day, um, you know, related, Max Tegmark, and he's talking about, like, artificial intelligence is a form of life. It actually has all the attributes of life, according to him in his book, Life 3.0. Um, and so we go through these different uh, definitions, and yet we really can't come to an understanding, a universally accepted thing. So why should we then take the haughtiness, the, the arrogance, the swagger, uh, and put that towards uh, a put down towards the social sciences? I happen to believe that you can take it too far in the social sciences. And I do think that 
even they recognized it when they added, you know, sociology and they and they added prefixes, you know, or, or, or you know, uh, political science. We used to just call that government when I was a kid or civics or so. Yeah. But that wasn't scientific enough. And it goes to this notion which I've talked about in in my Prager University most recent one. I've done three, but one of them was called follow the science. And it's all about how people use the word science as a cudgel, as a battering ram. If you don't accept this, you are not the party of science. You are not the following the science. You you're a Luddite. You're, and even though you could be an astrophysicist, you could be a brilliant evolutionary biologist, if you don't accept this, you are not following the science. And so I think we have to be very careful uh, in Feynman's terms. And by the way, you know, Feynman would probably be the first on the cancellation block you know, nowadays for some of his, his behavior. I don't think he would fit in uh, so well. But you know, my question to you is, do we get rid of such people? Do we, like, at some level, maybe you keep them away from the undergraduate co-eds, um, but do you ostracize them completely? So I, I had this conversation with some of my audience members when I had Lawrence Krauss on. Very controversial. Uh, he left Arizona State under very, very uh, serious accusations, allegations. And I get people saying, you know, why the hell did you have him on? Um, and I get people saying, why did you have Gad Sad on? And then I have Gad Sad. Why the hell did you have Noam Chomsky? No, no. Uh, but, but the... <laughs> uh, the I never said no, that. you never said that. Yeah, right. Actually, I want to recommend to your listeners to just go to my channel. We made a, a, a super a super cut of Gad's greatest hits on my podcast. It's called Sad University. Oh, seven, seven minute semester. And you got to check it out. It's Gad's just like, it's like Gad at 11. You, you got to watch it. It's unbelievable. But that's the whole point. What do you, what do you, um, you know, what, what gives us as physicists the right to look at this? Mathematicians could look at us and say, well, you guys can't, we can't even prove something in physics, Gad. I don't know if you know that, but we can't do a proof, you know, the equivalent of Euclid in physics. There's no such thing. So who the hell are we to say, oh, well, this, you know, this social scientific or Darwinistic, you know, uh, ca uh, capitalism, whatever is not true science. I think that's, that's hubristic. You know, it's funny, uh, speaking of all those, uh, you know, uh, penis-sized mathematicians amongst the disciplines. I remember when I was a math student, you know, pure mathematics and so on, the, the general story was exactly as you said. We would oftentimes be taking courses, for example, analysis of algorithms, which was this very, you know, theoretical course, and then the engineers would be in the class, and we were kind of like, we would rub their head, oh, I know it's kind of hard for you, dear engineer, because the, there the hierarchy was, the kind of engineering slash mathematical physicist types were kind of the dumb kids on the block compared to, but I thought it was also silly, right? I mean, there are brilliant people in any field. I mean, very few people are going to argue that Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, is a bat, you know, a blathering idiot. And so I, I often get so offended by this kind of, uh, what I consider to be truly gauche elitism, right? I mean, there are great thinkers in any domain of intellectual excellence, and we, we need to stop. Uh, by the way, one of the things I'm thinking of doing, uh, I hope that someone who's watching this doesn't steal the idea from yeah, me. Yeah. So, you know, there's this idea of, I don't know if you, you know, like fast and frugal heuristics. Have you heard this term before? Yeah. It's, so Gerd Gigerenzer, who's a German psychologist, uh, you know, so a psychologist, therefore a fake scientist, because, <laughs> you know, it should be... It should be physicists who study the human mind and human behavior, right. or or crystallographers. Right. Those are the people. I mean, it shouldn't be people who specialize in studying the human mind who should study the human mind. God who forbid. Exactly. So, anyways, fast and frugal heuristics is the application. Well, exactly of fast, fastly deployed and cognitively frugal heuristics to to make a decision. Well. 
I think people use these types of shortcuts when they navigate through the world, oftentimes wrongly so. So if I see someone in a lab coat, it sound, it looks sciency. It mm-hmm. is consistent with my archetype of the scientist. So if I'm running a fMRI study, right, where you write a brain imaging study, and I either wear the lab coat or not, and I ask you to judge how scientific the question is, and I don't change anything about the scientific question other than wearing a lab coat or not, you will judge me, that's what I'm hypothesizing, as much more scientific if I'm wearing a lab coat, right? Yes, exactly. So do you think that that's where a lot of this elitism is coming from? Physicists, to the extent that they are addressing things that feel sciencey, feel impenetrable, they must be scientists. Sociologists must be just bullshitters. Yeah, you see a lot of this nowadays, except, Gad, I would have to say it's starting to be the converse effect. In other words, we're starting to get a sociological imprint on the boundaries of physics. And we're, we're hearing terms about, you know, those things that were once solely the purview of yourself and your colleagues, and now they're becoming a part of physics. In other words, the movement and the accusation of racism, of sexism, of, of uh, you know, ableism, all these things were once, you know, we didn't talk about them. I'm not going to say that this is good or bad or that I agree or disagree. We can get into that. Uh, but the bottom line is now there's, um, you know, as they say, you know, comic books are not um, serious intellectual matter. The history of comic books is interesting uh, and intellectual propriety, you know, is, is preserved. Um, so is it the case that um, that what's good for the goose is good for the gander? In other words, can we go and say, well, physics needs a little bit more humility when it comes to treating the social sciences? Is that also you know, conversely, imp- uh, you know, implying that we have a lot to learn in physics from the social sciences. But are there things in physics that can be learned? There have been many, many, by the way, there have been many, many hoaxes perpetrated, the famous Sokol hoax. Uh, there was another more recent hoax uh, in the same kind of vein uh, talking about, um, you know, the epist- uh, the uh, hermeneutics of a new kind of, of string theory. And, and uh, you know, it was famous uh, uh, back in the 90s. And, and I think the the the... the you know, sort of the jargon when a physicist uses it, I think there is at rock bottom a fundamental monad, a fundamental definition of what is a multiverse. You may think it's preposterous. You, I made a PragerU video three years ago called What's a Bigger Leap of Faith, God or the Multiverse? God or the Multiverse? And uh, we all know the answer to that. Uh, so I can think the concept is, but at least there's a rock solid definition of what it is. You may think it's preposterous, though. So you gave me a great segue. You, you mentioned about some of the racism and ableism that's seeping its way to uh, to uh, physics. And of course, that's all within my wheelhouse because the parasitic mind right here somewhere, I can't see it, uh, is basically talking about all the idea pathogens that are now infiltrating not just the social sciences, but the natural sciences. So a few things I want to discuss in this segment about sort of these idea pathogens and physicists. So let's start first with my hero and mentor, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who came on your show and made the following point. So I will summarize it. You'll correct me if my summary is wrong, and then I'd like to know what your position is. He was sort of wagging his finger at you and said, you know, it's very, very disappointing that you would say that I'm naturally gifted and that I am articulate because that is exactly consistent with the racist trope. And by the way, our mutual good friend, and I truly, in this case, I'm not being sarcastic as I was with DeGrasse Tyson. Michael Shermer is one of the loveliest, sweetest, kindest scholars that I, I know. And yet he 
was against me when I went on Twitter and he said, I actually think that is a racist stroke, Dad, when you call a black person right. articulate or naturally gifted. What's your position? I did, by the way, a sad truth clip where I dismantled this nonsense, but I'd like to know what your view was, both now and how you felt as he was wagging his finger. <laughs> yeah, that was a kind of a, a rare moment because he basically accused me of, of implicit racism and he, he literally said, I'm going to play the race card on you. Um, and the clip that preceded that uh, was one of, uh, of, of, great, of great, I think, you know, honesty and, and, um, and consilience in the sense that I preceded that by, he didn't know this about me, by the way, which, which tells you that he didn't, assume the best about me, which I think you should do when you're having a debate, even especially with someone who's being cordial and buys you on their podcast has been, you know, uh, buying your books for decades and, and, and actually and was being very admiring. You are truly being yes, complimentary, very solicitous. But now there are issues, you know, people say, well, you know, he's not a real scientist and I, I don't, I don't want to get into any of that. He's an expert Gad, at his craft, what he does, whatever you may think of it. He is a, is a excellent popularizer of science. He's not writing papers. He's, he's not going to sign. And he's he is Gad by my reckoning the most famous scientist in history because 22 million people follow him on social media, which he will remind people about on many occasions, right? Uh, and so Einstein, you know, how many people knew who Einstein was, you know, even in his day or Newton in his day? So Neil in his day is the most famous scientist by that metric. Now, um, the 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 point that I had made just prior to that clip, and obviously I selected it because I thought it was provocative and important for people to hear his response to it, even though it doesn't make me out to be that great uh, a human being at first, at least. I hope by the end of this conversation, uh, you won't get that impression fully fortified. Uh, we have some fighter jets flying over, Gad. Uh, we UCSD is uh, is located near the proud Marine Squadron of uh, Miramar uh, Naval uh, Miramar uh, Air Station, which is uh, not far from here. So I've got some. some some 27-year-old men and women flying uh, 38... White supremacists, white supremacists, because we know that the military is now trying to root out 90, 95% of the service people, men and women, who are white supremacists. Let's solve white supremacy in physics before we move on to the military. Uh, So I had said to to Neil beforehand, before that clip begins, I had said when you were younger at Bronx Science, which, by the way, Gad, has more Nobel laureates than most countries on Earth, um, have come out of Bronx Science. Before you went to Cornell, before you went to Harvard, before you went to Columbia, um, you were at uh, Bronx Science and you were a championship wrestler. And he's like, oh, yeah, but that wasn't you know, such a big deal with all the nerds and, and what. I said, still, you did this. But, but Neil, tell me, how did you resist the temptation? Because I knew my best friend, and I hate to say it, but he's the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. He was the best man at my wedding, Professor Stefan Alexander. And he had told me that Niels, because he's from the South Bronx also, and he had asked, he had told me that he respected the hell out of Neil because all the all the teachers at Bronx Science were saying, "Are you crazy? Go go on a wrestling scholarship! Like, don't don't do like forget about science." Yeah. But Neil overcame that, and I asked him. I said, "What gave you the strength to do that?" Because he didn't credit to his parents necessarily. He didn't credit it to his teachers. Certainly, that were encouraging him to go into athletics, which is the stereotype that I think would be most pernicious. And so I said, what gave you the courage to do that? Was it um, something that you, you know, that you thought about? Is it just an innate gift to who you are? And that's where the conversation picked up. He said, I'm going to play the race card on you because when you say a black man that's articulate and strong and blah, 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 and your tendency is to ascribe to him gifts rather than hard work as you would with a white person. And so at that point... You know, it, it, oh, sorry, let me interrupt you. And then yeah. you'll take the floor again. 
I got offended by proxy for you or vicariously, right? Because, and you had written to me saying, hey, check out this clip. And I, at first I was going to be, I don't want to touch it. I want to reduce my blood pressure. Then I watched it. I got super pissed off. And then I started, you know, defending you. Look, you could have said the exact same thing to me, right? right. I used to be a very competitive and talented soccer yep. player until I had a career-ending injury. Yep. And, but I was also very talented and academic. You could have replaced every single word that you said to him that said them to me. Mm. But if you say them to me, I'm not a black man, so that's okay. But if you say it to him, you're playing the racist trope card. It's insane. Right. Anyways, go on. So in that case, I really felt like it was kind of an ambush, you know, maybe that had been in waiting. And actually, some of my viewers, you know, second, you know, your, your podcast viewers and the Sad Truth listeners are only second to the Into the Impossible uh, viewers for, for both, you know, uh, the, the, the beautiful, handsome appearance that they maintain, the aroma that they produce, and their brilliance intellectually, right? So, I mean, we have the best in the known multiverse. In this case, they were pointing out to me in the comments section just completely roasted Neil. And actually, I think it's a little bit too much. But, but some of it was like he said the exact same thing. You know about the John Stewart, and so so for your listeners, please do watch that clip. Watch the sad uh, university seven minute semester clip. But this clip on my channel, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I'll leave it up for for a while longer. And what it shows is is really that he has the style of preparing of of you know going into the news archives and and figuring out the time duration between John Stewart's joke that he gives you to laugh and then and then start a new joke and a new thread. How many days in the news cycle does he go? So he worked very hard at that particular aspect. That's nothing to do. Science, by the way, that was just his media personality, which is what he is to a large extent, and he is unparalleled. And I look up to him, and I said, not only did I not feel that was a racist comment, Neil, but I knew that exact preparation um, technique because yes. I used it myself, thanks to our mutual friend David Spurgle, who's the uh, president of the Simons Foundation, and he had told me when Neil goes on these things, this is what he does, and he explained exactly what Neil would tell me a year later. And except I needed those tips when I went on, not the sad truth, uh, because this is my first appearance, but when I went on Ben Shapiro's Sunday special. I don't agree with Ben on everything. Um, and, and it was going to be, you know, a very, very, um, you know, it was going to be my highest profile viewed thing to date at that time until now breaks all records for me. Uh, but at that moment, I was nervous, Gad. I'm just, you know, I, I didn't talk to Ben. I mean, he and I have been friends and he read my book and endorsed it and everything. But we had never sat down for an hour chat in front of millions of people that follow him. So I wanted to get it right. I got Neil's tips courtesy of my, our mutual friend, David Spurgle, who is one of his co-advisors at Princeton. And, and I, I said, that's what it, and you know what he said to me? After I relayed that to him, after calling the race card, he said, oh, thank you. And then he went on to another thing. So, you know, I, I, it was definitely frustrating to hear that. But again, I thought his, even though it made me look bad, I still feel like the way that he prepares, the way that he had that lesson, that is his expertise. Let me not deny my listeners the chance to benefit from that. And so I chose to air that, despite, you know, the way I might come off from it. I don't, I don't think you come off in any way badly so i i would implore you to never take that off because i think it if, if anything it just makes him look bad it doesn't mm. doesn't say anything about you if anything it shows that you you exhibited great restraint uh and uh, hospital you know hosp you were very hospitable towards him mm -hmm. right uh let me ask you this so we have different temperaments uh I, i'm someone who's very affable very warm very sweet very fun but if you cross me i'm endlessly uh, angered. So I truly become the rabid honey badger because it's just, that's just the way my makeup is. Whereas you seem to be a lot more, you know, you can kind of 
So what he did to you, if he did that to me, he's now at my you know, my, my never-ending enemy camp. How are you able to exhibit that kind of restraint? Is it that you are strategic and you don't want to burn that bridge? Because for me, I don't give an F. You cross me this way, you disrespect me, I'm going after you till the end of time. Uh, why are we different in that way? How are you possibly better than me in this way? Well, you know what? Um, I don't know if I'm better than you. I, I, I think I'm learning from you, Gad. I'm, I, I mean this in all sincerity. I'm not just saying this to blow sunshine around. Um, there's a Yiddish proverb. You probably know it. You know, he who stands in the middle of the road gets hit by both sides of the traffic. And I see you as you don't stand in the middle of the road on anything. Your opinions, your knowledge, your, you know, as you say, swagger, uh, your cocksuredness in a good sense. Um, that is a beautiful trait. And you have tremendous preternatural confidence. Um, I'm, you know, slowly becoming, you know, in inculcated in the media, in social media, uh, getting somewhat of a following. My, my YouTube channel is, you know, logarith one logarithm of yours, uh, the square root uh, of the logarithm of your channel's viewership. But it's something I feel an obligation to do, and maybe we'll get into that. However, I'm getting the sense that I need to bring more of my personality out and not because I, I don't think like, look, I talked to, to Noam Chomsky. I don't think it would be productive for you to talk to Noam Chomsky. I think you can talk to Noam Chomsky through me and, and I can put up a clip of him and a clip of you as we did in seven minutes at university semester. And just like you just went off on, on an intellectual. It wasn't ad hominem. It was intellectual. Here's the different epistemic ways. Here's the different modalities. Here's evolution. Here's um, geology. Here's, you know, and you just went through it methodically like a surgeon. I right now am in the building phase, I think, of kind of generating a, a persona, a, uh, an outreach to the, to, the, uh, to the outward world. I don't feel like right now it would be productive. Uh, to call him on it necessarily. I also feel like in the back of my mind is my wife, you know, saying, you know, why is somebody reacting like this? Why, um, you know, why is, what's the root cause psychologically? And I'm not a psychologist, but what, what would be the root cause of this person's reaction to it? And can I think stoically about it? In, a, in other words, can I say, look, you know, I don't agree necessarily with what this person's saying, but I will afford them the opportunity to say it. Like when, when Chomsky came on, you know, I get shit, as I said, from, I'm sorry, this is a curse, by the way, but I, I get, I get, uh, Noam Chomsky comes on and I get c complaints because you're on, or Ben Shapiro's on, or Michael Knowles, or, or Larry tribe uh you know at harvard yeah. but look i try not to talk politically because i believe politics is is really it's 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 boring to me i'm just speaking purely venally i don't find it interesting i don't find politics interesting i don't think like oh that constellation's a republican constellation but that asteroid is a freaking democrat no it's bull it's total bs so for me, the most interesting things are the existential questions. So I can learn something from Noam Chomsky about communication, uh, you know, uh, about patterns, cognitive science, artificial intelligence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't care that he, you know, has repugnant views to me about Israel. I, I think that would be that would be, you know, uh, not profitable for me to just take him to task about the Cambodian genocide, which he would abide, you know, uh, for example, or Cuba, or the Republicans are the greatest terrorist organization on earth. I don't care about that. I'm not going to follow that. Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, standpoint, most of what we talked about was not in the scientific realm. It was about communication. It was about um, outreach because that's a dimension of my personality I want to develop. Got it. You know, 
there's one of the co-founders of the company that uh, that is licensing my show. It's Pod TV, and I'm not saying it now to, pro to promote it or plug it, but because it's relevant to the story. At one point, I was chatting with him, and I said, you know, one of the reasons why I went with you guys, they're, they're a new outfit. They're trying to do something big by becoming sort of a Netflix streaming of podcasters. Uh, but I could have gone with much bigger names, but I decided to go with them because I said, you know what? I really like you. You always say the right things, not as a slick, uh, you know, slick brick kind of guy, but you seem to have proper social etiquette, you know. And he goes, you know what? I think was, I can't remember if it was his mother or his his father. Uh, they taught me the code well, mm. and I now use that term. The co well, what 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 he meant by the code is the code of proper conduct. Mm. So. I'll give you an example. There is a a uh, a well a very well known public intellectual who lives in Southern California, who who I was on very good terms with, who's, who, who on whose show I've been. When we disagreed on uh, Donald Trump, uh, he ended up uh, you know kind of unfollowing <laughs> me and so on. That to me violates a fundamental code because I'm the type of guy that. Well, it's exactly when you sent me the tweet and I wanted to lower my blood pressure, but I know Brian and it pissed me off what Neil said, so I'm going to come out with guns blazing. Why? Because maybe rightly or wrongly, I have an abundance of honor and virtue mm. and you don't harm my integrity and you don't insult my friends. And that's just the code that I live by. So when I see someone violating these fundamental precepts of a moral virtuous personhood, then I, I lose my charitable quality. Because even if I had Neil or Noam Chomsky on my show, I would never be impolite to them because then my hospitable nature would take over. On the other hand, I could be very unforgiving in my social media interactions. I mean, I never swear, but I can come after you hard. I could mock you to death. I could look at you with derision. So someone like this public intellectual in question has become less worthy to me than a amoeba because he violated a fundamental precept of honorable, you know, codes. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I, you know, there's certainly a lot of people um, who agree with you even about this. Now, I should say, you know, uh, you called me Himmler earlier today uh, on Twitter, and, you know, I still showed up. What does that say? That means that I have full faith, confidence, and love for you as a brother that would uh, supersede that. I just know that's a joke, right? But with Neil... Sorry, you knew that that was a joke, right? No, no, no. I, I assume it's true. No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, uh, well, well done, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I just like to raise your book. I want to see that T spit out of you. But the, uh, but, but in terms of Neil deGrasse Tyson, I don't think he would stick around with a real racist for another forty minutes talking about his legacy. And so, it was like I think it might have been a canned thing. And there are people that put a link, you know, in the chat in that video to an interview he did with the Washington Post where he bristles about, you know, being considered having a gift. And so I know it wasn't the first time. And obviously he had this and I had this prepared. You know, I knew about it. Uh, I didn't think it would veer into that. But I, I don't think you're right. The only thing I fault him on is that he um, I have, again, the logarithm of his, you know, kind of social media and so forth. I'm a big and I'm an earnest person, you know, solicitous of his advice and knowledge. Um, but it got off a little bit on a wrong foot because he was like saying, why do you need me on the show? You've had nine Nobel Prize winners on, which is true. And now 10. 
you know, when you would get your well-deserved Nobel Prize. But um, I transcend the Nobel Prize. But <laughs> so, uh, so in terms of you know where where how do I feel about him? I I feel like um, I've learned everything I'm going to learn from him. In other words, the the Russians have a term like uh, one who eats food that someone else has eaten. In other words, it's kind of a disgusting metaphor, but the Russians are, no, the Russians are known for that, right? Um, and I'm part Russian, so I can say that. I won't get canceled by my Russian friends. Yeah. I'm a cat's paw. You're not a Russian You're not a Russian You know that, right. Yeah, I'm not a cat's paw either. Um, but but, but the, the fact is, I've extracted all the enthalpy, all the useful kind of information that I personally would want to get. Now, my listeners don't want to see him back on. They, they really feel turned off. So I feel like it redounded against him. I, do, I actually feel guilty about that. My wife was like, why'd you do this to him and I'm like you know geez you know you know to her um, I felt like he is big enough he can handle any like blowback he never even responded he didn't respond to the first time I aired the interview let alone the clip and so I, I don't think he's losing much sleep over it and um, and uh, you know because of that I think you know I think we need to be a little bit more I need to be a little bit more circumspect and but I think he taught me a, a lesson. This is where the stoicism comes. You can tell I'm a Zen-like, you know, character, right? right but, um, but, but, like, now I learned a lesson. You know, like, I should always be prepared. And actually, I gave a talk once to the Black Physicist Society that I'm a member of, honorary lifetime member of. And at the end, it was with uh, Jim Gates, who's one of the fathers of supersymmetry, uh, brilliant, uh, uh, he happens to be black, uh, cosmologist, uh, particle physicist, theoretical physicist. Don't say he's articulate. Don't say he's articulate, though. I sent him this Don't video. He's one of my best friends be and mentors. And I sent it to him. And uh, and we just had a delightful conversation about it. And not once did he mention anything about race or, you know. And he's, ha he's, he's the president of the American Physical Society. He's like my uber boss, right? This is an amazing human being. And not once did he, like, does he mention it. And and actually use something. It's so boring. I know. That it, this race stuff is such bullshit, right? Like. I love Thomas Sowell. His darker skin color to mine right. is the 900th least interesting thing about him. It's an insult to human dignity. So when Neil deGrasse Tyson said that to you, he lost, not that he cares, but he lost any respect I could have had for him because he should be able to transcend that bullshit and yet he's playing straight into that woke stuff. What a disappointment. That's why I said I feel I feel like a little bit of guilt because it lowered his esteem in so many people's eyes and he didn't have he didn't have to do it. Like in other words it was unnecessary, it was gratuitous, but um but let me just say one thing. So I did get those comments and then earlier this year it turns out um Jim Gates who I just mentioned the he happens to be African-American, the president of the American Physical Society, the highest level of physics you can reach. And, um, and his daughter is also a theoretical physicist. She just graduated. She was the second black female PhD from Harvard. How do I know that? Because Harvard celebrates that. Okay, fine. Um, you know, Gad, I, I put a, a link to her video, which is she's one of the most charming, brilliant individuals you'll ever meet. I'm not going to say she's articulate. She happens to be beautiful, too. I just love her. She, okay, fine. Uh, she's a beautiful human being. And I said to her, I, um, and she had a wonderful like introduction. What is a black hole? What are the advanced properties of black holes? And she gave this brilliant lecture. 5,000 people saw it. 100% thumbs up. You know, Gad, I put this on Twitter. I've got a lot of woke friends on Twitter. I've got a lot of people that I love, and I love they write books about racism and stuff. But whatever. Did they once, any of the African-American physicists, besides a handful, uh, three or four did, and it was really nice to see that. Neil deGrasse Tyson didn't tweet it out. And I said, like, this is kind of like Keating's razor. Like, 
are you really supportive and wanting to be partners with an ally, i.e. me, Brian Keating, who started programs for the National Society of Black Physicists with partnership with them, who is a member of it, et cetera, et cetera, and features nine, uh, eight interviews with African-American physicists on his podcast channel. I don't see Neil deGrasse Tyson doing that. Did they once tweet out, good for you, you know, Delilah, even to her, I don't care about me. But just to show, you guys seem to care, like we're not living up and that physics is racist. Now you have a woman who's a wonderful, happens to be black. Again, happens, just happens to be black. I got more retweets from people like um, Eric Weinstein, you know, white Jewish, you know, and, 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 and people like, you know, uh, Michael Knoll. It just was random. Ben Shapiro. Why? Why is that? So it tells me there might be another agenda. And... I don't really care so much. Again, I don't, I'm not interested in politics, political science, and all. I, I just want to do the greatest science. So what do I believe, Gad? You want to hear something controversial? I believe that racism in science probably exists, as does anti-Semitism, which I mentioned to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I said, Neil, I hear this all the time. If I'm not anti-racist, I'm racist. So I want to ask you in the name of, you know, Ibrahim X. Kendi, you know, is Ibrahim X. Kendi, is he anti-Semitic? I don't see him doing anything for anti-anti-Semitism. Do you? And he, he basically was just like, he, he didn't really answer that. And I don't want him to answer for I'd like to ask that to Ibrahim X. Kendi. I actually asked Alicia Garzner, Garzna, who is one of, Garza, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, alumna of, oh, yes. alumna of UCSD. Um, I asked her to come on the podcast. I want to ask her these questions. They don't, they don't come on. I would love to talk. I'm very charitable. They can look up all my interviews. The bottom line is, I, I, I think, you know, there's a meta agenda. And what, who it's really hurting? First of all, it's hurting people to think that they have they have to pay what I call the black tax. They have to be thinking: is this a microaggression? Is this racist? But it's also hurting white scientists who have to think about you know what is what can I do? That I didn't commit these sins twenty years ago. I didn't keep women out of physics departments. I didn't keep Jews out of physics departments a hundred years ago. I didn't keep blacks out of physics departments twenty years ago. I'm being, you know, taught every two every two years. I have to take a two hour course on anti racism training, and I do it. But but the bottom line is, I feel like physics will suffer if we don't recognize that we do need to involve everybody. As I told you when you were on my show. I said, this is the home institution of Maria Geppert Mayer. She was a woman. She identified as a cisgender woman. I know that because I met her son, okay? And she won the Nobel Prize in 1963 when she was here. She was a birthing person. What's that? She was a birthing person. She was a birthing person. Very good. So her son, yes, told me this. When she won the Nobel Prize, the Union Tribune in San Diego had the headline, San Diego Mother Wins Nobel Prize. She couldn't get a job anywhere before she came here. Not at UChicago, not at Johns Hopkins, superior universities uh, to our university at that time. Not now, but, but at that time. And, um, and that was because she was a woman. Before that, Feynman couldn't get into grad school because he was Jewish. And, and I... And I I don't want to deny, when I bought my house in, in San Diego, there was a covenant that said you can't sell it to a black, a Jew, or a Mexican. Now, do I think that physics is eternally tarnished with that reputation of sexism? And stuff? I would like to think not, but I feel like it's a backwards-looking thing. We need to do better, and we need to in, improve access to it. But when people do stuff, and it's independent of it, they should be celebrated. And I just wish my colleagues would recognize that this, you know, we, we are we are... We have the opportunity to do something that will ultimately redound to the benefit of physics itself because racism hurts the racist 
as much as it does the other person. Of course, the racist is evil and the victim is not, but the racist loses the benefits of the intellectual contributions, the, the diversity of opinion. You know from jury selection, having a broader diversity is found to be much more pervasively accept, uh, beneficial to society. That's true in science too. And I think we have to recognize that and we have to do better. But I am worried that, that yes, there is, there is, it's kind of thrown around too much for my taste to call me a racist because I am part of a system that's racist. I feel like it's unfalsifiable to use Popper's terms. And I don't know how that can't be applied to somebody who's not working towards anti-anti-Semitism, for example. So I'll agree with almost everything you said. I'll just quibble with one issue. I'm not sure that diversity of immutable characteristics add to the richness of science. I think science is precisely uh, liberating because it frees us from the shackles of our personal identity. There is no Hasidic Jewish way of doing physics. There is no uh, black indigenous way of doing physics. It's precisely to think that that would make you a racist. That's what is beautiful about the scientific method. It is perfectly democratic. It is true that there have been systemic barriers to entry, to enter the club, to play, and to the extent that any still exists, we should work hard to eradicate these. But I'm not sure that we can argue that by having more women of color in my lab, that simply will add to the richness of how well I can do evolutionary behavioral sciences. I think that if she is a brilliant person who's got great ideas and intellectual curiosity, she will be no better at solving problems than the Hasidic Jew or the transgender. Sure, person. sure. And I, I agree with that, Gad. I would just say that there's, so that's the, um, I would say that's the, the ratchet and Paul system moving in one direction, which is that you are not discriminating. But I think the contrapositive, which you would agree with, is that you would also not discriminate against someone because of their color. In other words, you're making the advocacy that you don't just hire someone because, but there were in the past, as you and I know, there were quotas. There were, uh, there are still quotas at Harvard, as you know, against Asian America. That's, that's awful. Uh, there were quotas in, in the, you know, and, 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 uh, against Jews, against women, uh, not quotas, but there was just unwritten rules. There were, uh, so, I think I agree with you. It's science should be a meritocracy, but it definitely should not be an anti, you know, it shouldn't be pure and simple racist in that sense that you discriminate or anti-Semitic or trans, whatever. It shouldn't be that as just an equal and opposite amount to supporting the meritocratic ideals that you just advocated for. Fair enough. I'm just going to read something for you. Yeah. This is, and I know that you said when offline that you weren't familiar with the Alessandro Strumia. Alessandro Strumia is a physicist who a few years ago was speaking at a uh, event on uh, gender and physics, and he shared some bibliometric data showing that, so bibliometric data is very objective, there's nothing biased about it, it's right. like any other data. And he showed some analyses suggesting that the narrative that women are being uh, you know, mistreated in physics was simply not true. Using bibliometric data, which you could either argue against or support, that's part of a intellectual conversation. So he was fired from his job at uh, CERN. Uh, he was, I think, possibly going to lose his job, maybe University of Pisa, I don't remember where it is exactly. And there was a signatory, a group of signatories uh, under the very obnoxious name Particles for Justice that I want to read for you here. All right, stop reading the Twitter, whatever it is that you're reading and focus. I'm twi uh, tw texting with my lover, my wife. <laughs> Quite... Uh, so here it is. This is uh, their statement of condemnation contained countless misrepresentations unbefitting of supposedly unbiased and objective scientists, including the following 
lead sentence of the second paragraph. Quote, we write here first to state in the strongest possible terms that the humanity of any person, regardless of ascribed identities such as race, ethnicity, gender identity, religion, disability, gender presentation, or sexual identity, is not up for debate, close quote. And then I added in my book, this is from The Parasitic Mind, page 36, mm -hmm. this is a grotesquely dishonest, dishonest tactic, as Strumia did not question anyone's humanity, let alone mention any of the listed identities. So for simply having the temerity to offer bibliometric data that went against the uh, narrative that women were treated the way the Taliban treat girls, that they were being held back and so on, simply for showing bibliometric data that did not support that narrative, Particles for Justice made up of some of the biggest physicists, including uh, Sean Carroll, whom I met once very briefly at a uh, common conference, uh, went all decided to destroy this guy. And of course, what did I do? I was the maybe the first person to invite him on my show to offer him at least whatever small protection I could offer him. So for someone like you, so again, you heard earlier about my, my code of honor, right? Uh, once you are a brother at arms, I will die defending you. How, how are you able to reconcile? And I know it's a leading question, but someone like Sean Carroll, whom we can both respect as a very bright person, a bright physicist, once he takes this position against a fellow uh, physicist and so greatly and gravely misrepresents his position, I look at Sean, at Sean Carroll as an amoeba. Hmm. Yes, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, I am, I am very perturbed. I'm very humiliated that I thought I was the first physicist on your show. I mean, this is ridiculous. You had on another video, you two-timing. My apologies, my apologies. So um, I find certain behaviors abhorrent in no matter where I hear it from. Um, again, as I said in, by email or, or on, on Twitter to you on DM, you know, that particular case, it was just like, it was so intense, the, the, the passion, the, 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 the vitriol uh, and so forth and the condemnation and, and then this campaign um, that I immediately used Keating's razor <laughs> and I realized this is not, this is not good for me. You know, this is not good to like... Define what Keating's, Keating's razor is for those So Keating's razor is that which distracts, is likely to distract you from the ultimate goal in the finite lifespan that I have, uh, you know, I'm almost coming up on my third life crisis. I'm, I'm almost 50. Um, you know, that which distracts me from the ultimate mission of understanding the mind of God, however grandiose you want to put it, it or spending time with my loved ones, including my family and dear friends, is not something I'm going to engage in. Now, I may, I may, you know, have an opinion about it, um, and I may feel uh, that it's important as a social commentator, you know, to whatever degree I have social standing to present. Now, I will, on the other hand, react against the general statement, which is that, um, so he was not so much the issue, even as I, as I read that, that relatively verbose description for Particles from Justice. And many of the people who, who um, were the primary players in that, I know personally. Uh, however, that statement, I didn't sign on to that, and I didn't sign on to other, you know, kind of, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter takeover of STEM and stuff like that, because my impression is that when you, so I think Streamio was maybe, is it is is maybe a special case? Let's put them aside. Let's just say you say physics is sexist, physics is racist. Um, so I look around 
and applying what's called the Copernican Principle. So the Copernican Principle says that and no galaxy is the center of the universe because every galaxy is the center of the universe. The sun is not the center of the galaxy. There's many stars you know, other than the sun that are closer to the center of the galaxy. There are many galaxies that are, that are equal in every way to the Milky Way. So there's nothing that's unique and individual, and therefore the collective, the whole, cannot be considered uh, representative of whatever you ascribe to it. In other words, you can't say of the universe that it has a center because every galaxy can claim to be the center. Therefore, you cannot say physics is racist unless there are people within physics that will say, I am a racist. Or I am a ra and in which case, Gad, would you listen to me? Like, if I told you, like, actually, I'm kind of a racist, Gad. You know, I may, may have black people on my show. I may, you know, talk and, and, be, and be, you know, a member of these black physicist society. I'm all right. You'd say, F you, Brian. I don't care how much of a brother I have been in the past. If I suddenly tell you, Gad, you know what, I'm a, uh, I'm a racist. You know, uh, by the same token, if everybody in an organization denies to the tooth and nail that they are racist, I think it's, it's preposterous to say it is systemically racist. Does that mean there aren't racists? Of course not. They're anti-Semites. Does that mean America is anti-Semitic or that physics is anti-Semitic? Of course not. I don't believe that at all. So I always look at it, can you turn the same argument towards anti-Semitism, towards you know, anti-women, anti anti-trans, whatever you want. In this case, or let's take the James Damore case because I know that better in some sense. What he was saying is that um, Google is not racist, it is not sexist. And Google was saying, no, 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 we are. We're incredible. And I think, like, I punch racists in the face. I hate racists. I hate anti-Semites. I hate bullies. I hate all these massages. I hate them. I have daughters. I, I don't want to, you know, like, be around somebody like that. But you tell me I'm part of a racist system, that makes me racist. And I feel like that's preposterous. Nobody believes it about themselves. And if they do, again, they have serious psychiatric problems. They say, I'm a racist and I need a diversity training to get rid of my racism and implicit bias training. I'm worried about that person. You know, per force, I worry about a system that can be declared where none of its members, none of the elements of the set of physics will declare and identify as racist. Now, you might say, of course you're not going to say I'm racist. But I, I think at a certain point, it gets to be a little bit too much. And in the case of Damore in particular, where he was saying, no, Google is actually not a sexist place. Here's some data. And maybe Strumia was saying the same thing. Again, I don't know that case as well. And people will probably fault me for not knowing that. But you know what? There's only so much time in the day. Uh, my father died very early in life. I don't want to meet that fate. I want to spend time on the biggest, most important issues in understanding our cosmos while I can still do it productively. I appreciate that pragmatism and that strategizing, but just to close the loop on our previous Neil deGrasse Tyson story, I think the righteous indignation that we just exhibited now could have been very justifiably exhibited at the false accusations of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, in my case, that righteous indignation activation system is on hyperdrive. In other words, I walk around the world as the great, you know, seeker of truth and justice, which doesn't do well for my cortisol levels. It doesn't do well for my blood pressure. So somewhere between my, you know, going out and making sure that nobody strays from the truthful path and you sort of shrugging your shoulders at Neil is probably where the optimal position is. Uh, do you, did you want to say something about this, or can I move on? We're, we're almost out of time. Uh, Let's move on. Let's move on. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a fun topic, uh, and which was suggested by uh, yourself, UFOs. 
Now, you're an astrophysicist, so I, in some sense, you're able to comment about is there intelligence life, intelligent life. I actually wrote at one point to Michael Shermer because he's kind of the, the, the well, not kind of, he's the founder of the Skeptic Society. Yeah. He knows his arguments against the UFO stuff. And I was watching Tucker Carlson, who every second show, he's got some new proof that there is some military Air Force guy who saw little guys running around. And and then Michael Shermer said, it's all utter bullshit. It's all easily refutable. Where do you fall on all this, Dr. Peter? So I had I had Michael Shermer on my podcast in a debate with Eric Weinstein, who is much more, I wouldn't say he believes necessarily in the alien phenomena, uh, per se, but so they, the three of us had a, had a very charming debate. You can see that on my channel uh, last month when this Pentagon report came out that uh, talks about 144 unsolved cases. And of course, there's always the base rate fallacy. You're always going to like, you know, ignore, you know, what is the normal inst 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 uh, instances of pilots mistaking something in the sky for a weather balloon or Venus, you know, uh, actually, Gad, when you exclude periods of the year when Venus is invisible because it's either passing too close to the sun or it's behind the sun or something like that, uh, it's uh, actually the incidence reporting rate of UFOs drops dramatically. In other words, most of the... No yeah. Um, and you take out like... What's the explanation for? Say that again? You got a good one? You're going to give us the explanation for why Venus is related to the frequency. Yeah, of Venus is so is is yeah, it's very bright and and it also does not twinkle the way a star does. So people think it's uh, it's not it's a plane or something like that. But then it doesn't move because it takes weeks to move, and then it changes. You know, so they they just report it. You know, people report seeing Elvis, right? Um, so so the mistaken of something in the sky that's difficult to ascertain has led scientists to kind of fall into two camps. One, this is silly, ridiculous, nonsensical BS, looking for guys with giant foreheads and little slit eyes that are colored gray, um, versus those that say, look, um, it deserves attention because the kind of Pascal's wager is in favor of us investigating it. In other words, if it is real and we ignore it, the consequences are devastating. Maybe they're going to eat us. Maybe they're going to you know, have sex with us. I don't know. Or maybe they're, we're going to ignore the fact they could teach us about the physics of the 23rd century and we could skip uh, better than any wormhole or black hole or the holes that you inhabit uh, between now and then. We could just short. Uh, who would want that more than a physicist, Gad, to know the future? Before, before you go on, because you said they want to have sex with us. Are, do you think that if the UFO folks were to hold sex slaves, I probably would be sort of the ultimate sex slave they would want, given my virility? I'm yeah, yeah, you'd, you'd yeah, you'd be, you'd be the alpha, you'd be the alpha in that omega scenario. Right? I'd be the omega. Okay, so, uh, so having, uh, yeah, so you could put that on your CV. I, I think Concordia will really appreciate that. You know, uh, aliens, distinguished professor. Um, so looking at. You know, what are the benefits versus what are the costs? So to date, you know, there's been almost no serious scientific study. And the question is, who should study it? Well, I want to ask you, Gad, is a pilot an expert? Is a pilot an expert in the field of recognition of extra? And I think this is important for, you know, understanding the foundations of philosophy of science. Like, what constitutes expert observations? What is a pilot, in your estimation, an expert witness to testify on the reality of these phenomena? I mean, I would, so you're putting me on the spot, so the way that I would answer it off the top of my head is only if he's able to rule out all of the possible alternate ex alternative explanations, it's, it's some optical illusion. 
But just by being a pilot, I don't think that that necessarily makes you any more or less likely to do that. Yeah. But if you can, if you can argue you can, then I would say yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Some people do claim because they're used to you know relying on their uh, hand-eye coordination, maybe, or their expert visual acuity, or their um, you know ability to ascertain objects at great distances and, and strange perform, and they're actually witnessing, and they're corroborated maybe by by sensor data and things like that. Um, and um, and thinking about what do we do with such testimony? Because let's say let's let's apply Pascal's wager. And again, I'm sure your listeners, as almost as erudite as my podcast listeners, and into the impossible, they will know Pascal is basically saying if you believe it, act as if God exists. Even if he doesn't, then you'll get, you know the worst that happens is you kind of you know, maybe wasted some money on kosher food or something like that. But if he if you act like he doesn't exist and he does exist, the payoff matrix is infinitely damn it right. So so in this case, what if it's what if it's not aliens, but it's like you know Chinese drones or or, or Lebanese, you know, spycraft, or, or whatever it is, and and these are dangerous, just physical dangerous things to pilots. But now they're not going to report it because there's a stigma against them reporting it because no scientist takes them seriously. So there's a Pascal's wager inherent embedded in there, uh, and we can go through the list of reasons. But I'll just point out the budget from the Pentagon was like twenty two million dollars, which is less than one of the planes that flew over campus just a few minutes ago. So, so you're thinking about how much do they really spend on it? What's the um, downside if the Type Two error is made, uh, where you assume they don't exist but they do, um, and then the physics implications as well as just the insatiable need for public, you know, curiosity about this. There was a study done recently. Some macroscopic percentage of Americans want the Pentagon to increase their budget dramatically to study these things. And I made a joke, you know, once on Twitter. It was just like, what if you replaced you know, like we want you know to increase the budget to a billion dollars, not to search for aliens, but to search for God. You know, how would that go over? You know, it's like maybe that's not falsifiable either, you know, but maybe aliens aren't either because you could always say they mastered the laws of physics that they can cloak themselves when they need to. And they can just as you go down to the zoo, Gad, you don't bang on the on the gorilla cage. So the gorilla doesn't know you're there. You're kind of concealing yourself because you have this expert brain and, uh, and 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 so forth. So. There are all these arguments. I think it's interesting. I think some money should be applied to it. I just joined this project as an external advisor at Harvard, led by Avi Loeb, who has a claim that this meteor-like object is actually a uh, – or asteroid-like object is actually signs of alien technosignatures. In other words, we can hear radio waves from a, from a civilization distant many light years away as long as they've had technology to broadcast and the time is short enough that we can detect it. You know, We've only had radar since the 1940s. Um, so there's a lot of parameters that go in there, but he thinks no, it's not a radio signature of technological intelligence. You know, we almost don't care about intelligence. Like a dolphin is intelligent, we couldn't detect a dolphin species on planet Lorcon Seven. You know, if we tried, because they don't have technology. But you know, when they invent TikTok, as you have mastered, then and Instagram, everyone should follow you there. Uh, but and uh, then we can detect them, right? But Avi says, no, we can also detect their garbage barge, you know, sailing through the cosmos. And so I joined this project as an external advisor, unpaid. It's a private project, but it carries with it, you know, unfortunately, the 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 uh, imprimatur of the third best Ivy League, you know, for better or worse, Harvard is kind of the gold standard. And so this is getting a lot of attention and he's getting a lot of criticism, too. Uh, and so I, I find it very fascinating. And look, it's part of the, the Keatings. I want to have fun. This is part of the joy of being alive and understanding as many mysteries that can be answered should be answered. That's my guiding fundamental directive. 
I love that last uh, sentence because it speaks to one of the chapters in my next book where I, it's, it's tentatively titled, that chapter, Life as a Playground. And I basically argue that it's a, there's a mindset, because people often write to me and say, you know, you know, you're a very serious professor, and yet, I mean, in terms of your academic thing, but yet you seem like such a joker and you're affable. I mean, look at how many times we've made jokes. We're talking about stuff that most people would certainly consider to be very nerdy, and yet we could joke around and not take ourselves seriously and so on. So I truly believe that there is a mindset that, of course, people vary on it in terms of their innateness. Some people are more affable than other people, but that you can certainly kind of develop this this way of attacking life, right? I, I play with my children. Research is play, right? I mean, when you're doing research, you're just a big kid playing in a candy store in these intellectual landscapes. So so I love the fact that you're saying, hey, I took this on because it just sounds like fun. Yeah. By the way, I had a, I had a guy on, I, I banked his show also. It'll air out just like yours, our chat now, maybe in about six or seven weeks. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy. There's a guy who's worth $600 million who uh, went from being an undergrad in biology to, uh, uh, you know, trained as a lawyer at Yale, then became a CEO in a biotech company. Now he's writing, he just wrote a book called Woke Inc. I said, how do you keep pivoting throughout your career? And his answer, very much in line with what we're talking about, he said, I keep doing something until I get bored. I just want to have fun. I said, bingo. Right. And and at, 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 in one sense, it sounds as though you're being, you know, too unserious. No, this is that being playful is is deadly. It is. It's a really, it is. It's a healthy mindset for tackling the majesty of life. It's you, you tackle it with great wonder. It's fun. Right. right. One of the things I get from you is the joie de vivre, as, as the Lebanese would say, uh, is that you are having enjoyment. And the purpose of life is not to live. It's not to consume and metabolize, you know, simple sugars into, you know, into ATP and, and so forth. It's to, it's to experience, you know, as many, I say kosher delicacies as is possible in every sense of that word. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got the same exact advice. So my next book, which will be out when this airs, is called uh, Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, where I take my nine interviews with Nobel Prize winners and I condense them, not for their knowledge, Gad. As you know, the word science in Latin means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. And you have people that your fellow countrymen, you know, will call Taleb, will call intellectual yet idiot. So there's plenty of brilliant people that are total morons that you wouldn't want to ask to babysit your, your pet gopher for, for a weekend. And, and yet they have Nobel Prizes. These men have tremendous wisdom in addition to knowledge. So I distilled their wisdom you can look up their knowledge at the nobelprize.org site you know look up their wisdom you can't find it anywhere and one of the individuals that i interviewed ray weiss whose parents you know fled from nazi pre-nazi germany in the 30s came to america he does that exact same thing every five years he pivots he does something in cosmology then he did something in radio technology then he did something in gravity he won the nobel prize for etc etc so he keeps pivoting and he said if you're not having fun get out of it Get out of this field and just do it. And by the way, I'm sorry. No, no, no that's exactly just echoing exactly 100% what you said. Uh, look, one of the reasons why I started my show originally is because I started feeling stultified within the slow pace of academia. Now, I'm not denigrating academia. No. I am a professor in my DNA. I love doing the scientific stuff. I like publishing the peer-reviewed papers. That's that's all good. That's wonderful. It's part of my the in, in, inherent part of my job. But I could get on a show with someone super bright. I could then walk away completely buzzing all day because I had such a great conversation. I could post it, and within you know three hours, 
60,000 people have watched it, in my entire totality of my academic career, I won't have as much influence as that one appearance on Joe Rogan. Now, that's not coming from a narcissistic one. It's not because I'd like to see the... It's because there is an element. It's actually an altruistic thing, right? I mean, I'm not getting so much money from my conversation with you right now, Brian. But if I know that a few thousand people are going to watch this and go, God damn, this was time well spent. Boom. I had fun. I win. Yeah. And so if you could, if you could, if you could bottle that joie de vivre, I think you're the big winner. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and just to remind you, you know, when I get to that, you know, $600 million mark, I'm sure to remember all the rungs of the ladder I, I stepped on to get to the top. Uh, and I will have a place for you. There will be a wing in the key, in the Keating Library. There will be a sad wing. Uh, but I want to say, I want to echo and, and, and click on what you just said. Because I, you know, people say, why are you doing this podcast? You know, shouldn't you be doing, you know, more kind of, you know, critical studies or, yeah, you know, whatever. You should be doing something else, maybe physics. And, and my colleagues who are really rooted and grounded in the nuts and bolts and the day to day, you know, running of the project and, and so forth along with me, you know, much more technically competent than I am. I'll just be honest. Um, you know, they're like, why are you wasting your time writing books? And, 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 and I'm saying, well, I like you, Gad. I always valued the life of the intellectual. My father was a professor. I always wanted to do something. I didn't know that you could get paid to do nothing, basically. Or yeah, I always call it the th hardest three-hour-a-week job in the world. Uh, but uh, but by the same token, it's not true. You're you're being facetious. I know. I know. I know. Like our our chancellor should not should not take that too seriously. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the bottom line is, you know, I grew this this small podcast. And now it's, you know, top half of a percent, you know, it's within the logarithm of you. Uh, I've got, you know, 35, 40,000 people in different platforms. That, and I did it with no budget, nothing, you know, it's just like, but why did I do it? Because every day I'm on telecons. You know, I thought as an astronomer, I'll be on telescopes. No, 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 I'm on telecons. Like, why isn't this graduate student, you know, finishing her, you know, her prelims? Why isn't that concrete truck, you know, making it up the mountain? Why is this thing, you know, that thing? It's not looking through the telescope. Very rarely do I get to do that. So there are a lot of people I have to talk to. I have to talk to, you know, this associate vice provost for, you know, for, for reconciliation, whatever. I have to deal with people I have to talk to, but when I have people like you on, it's people I want to talk to. And, and just the same way, I also feel like I squandered my college years. I, I kind of like was very consumed with the academic, what I call the academic hunger games. To be a professor, you have to go to a good undergrad. To get into a good undergrad, you need a good high school. So I went high school, grad, uh, undergraduate, graduate school, postdoc, assistant professor, tenured professor. Now I'm full professor. You know, it's, it's all these rungs, and then the Nobel Prize has to be up. Um, but along the way, I didn't stop and, and smell the roses. I didn't really say, wow, as an undergrad, who cares if I like take pottery like you did? Or I didn't do that. It was like physics, linear algebra, you know, quantum mechanics. And, and I don't regret you know, the, the knowledge that I gained because I wasn't a natural student by any means uh, you know, in physics. I just had tremendous passion and curiosity um, for the subject matter that was the biggest, most you know, ex extravagant form of knowledge you could ever take upon, which is why I only study these big picture things. Uh, by the same token, I missed out on talking to you know people that were philosophy, um, you know, uh, uh, philosophers, people that were. I didn't. I never took a biology class. Like, there's so much fascinating stuff out there, and so now I feel like I call it the my. I call my podcast Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube or Into the Impossible on iTunes and elsewhere. I call it 
the free university that you wish you had, that you attend in your pajamas, and that you get uh, zero student loan debt for uh, Senator Warren to help write off. Uh, so that's that's my mission. That's why I'm doing it. And, you know, it's a couple hours a week, but, but it's really gratifying. I love talking. I love coming, uh, having guests like you on. I can't wait till your new book comes out. I, I would love to read it, uh, get an advanced copy like you kindly sent me last time, and, and have you back on my show as soon as it's out. Any so we're about to wrap up. Uh, any uh, current projects that you're working on that you feel comfortable promoting? It's the time to do it now, sir. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to you know I'm trying to grow a little bit in the social media front to become you know a, a Millie Gad. Uh, so I'm on you know Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, and Instagram, Dr. Brian Keating, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating. But my two passion projects now. Are, one is this new book that I uh, just came out called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, uh, which is kind of a sequel in some ways to my first book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, and that uh, those two books together is part of my, you know, like like Taleb has this inserto, so like that's my Nobel that's my Nobel Prize. So that that's all I'm going to do with the Nobel Prize. But I felt it would be you know a shame to bury the Nobel Prize without showing you that there are aspects of the meritocratic nature of science that are worth celebrating, not only for that, but for things like these Nobel Prize winners, Gad, revealed things to me I thought to be impossible. One of them said, you know, uh, I asked him, did you ever as a kid uh, experience the imposter syndrome where you feel like you're inadequate? And he said, yeah, "Yeah, I still feel it. I'm like, you're kidding me. You won the 2017 Nobel Prize uh, for detecting these gravitational waves that change the fabric of space-time less than one billionth of a proton width. He said, no, when you win a Nobel Prize, you have to sign this ledger. And the ledger contains all the names of every laureate who ever won the prize. And I was a curious man. I have always been a curious man, even at age 78. I looked through the pages. I saw Maria Gephardt Mayer, Richard Feynman, uh, you know, uh, Fermi, and then I saw Einstein. And he just stopped dead. And even now, the hair is raising on the back of my neck. And, and he said, I saw Einstein. I said, I'm not worthy of him. And I said, Barry, this is Barry Barris. I said, Barry, guess what? You know, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. Do you know who he worshipped at the altar of? And he said, no. And I said, Isaac Newton. Because he said Isaac Newton contributed more, not just to physics and math, Gad, but he contributed more to Western civilization. That was a good thing. Okay? Than any other human being. And he said, wow, I didn't know that. And I said, you know who Isaac Newton worshipped at the altar of? And he said, no. And who did he have imposter syndrome in front of? He said, no. I said, Jesus Christ Almighty. Because Isaac Newton claimed his, uh, in contradistinction to you, Gad, so prolific and virile and fertile, he claimed his highest achievement was dying a virgin. Not calculus, not universal gravitation, not optics. It was dying a virgin. So anyway, this has been a wonderful book, and it's exposed the kind of human nature of these laureates. And then the other thing I want to just close with is I'm working on the first ever, as I said, um, book, audio book of Galileo, and in it is the translation and uh, that that he did of uh, of really the laws of physics and 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 even the laws of philosophy. And one of the things that he had uh, that he had presented, and I just want to run it by you in psychology. Uh, when I'm reading his voice, it's a trilogue between these three characters. My character's name is uh, Sagredo. He's kind of like the the humble layperson arguing between Salviati, whose name means the savior. Uh, and uh, the genius that's representing Galileo, and another guy by the name of Simplicio, who's like the moron, the simpleton, and he's advocating the Pope's belief. Okay, that wasn't super smart of Galileo, intellectual yet idiot. But Galileo then, I'm reading it, and he says the following. And this reminded me of you, and and not you personally, but of people in your field. He said, 
he's talking about people that think that they know so much. He goes, this vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything. For anyone, Gad, who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had truly tasted how knowledge is accomplished, he, Gad, would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he understands nothing. It's just so beautiful. He's such a beautiful... So look for that coming uh, soon. That's an audio book coming out uh, with me and Carla. So the audio book is coming when and your second book is coming out? My second book's coming out in September 2021. The audio book, we're just wrapping up uh, production. It's a, it's the, the book is written over four days in Venice. It's so charming. Uh, I don't know when that'll be out. Probably in 2022. Beautiful. So nice to have you, Brian. I'll say officially goodbye to you off air. Uh, look forward to the next time that you'll be on. Thank you for granting me two hours, and I look forward to talking to you. Soon. Thank you so much, Gad. It's a true honor. Cheers. Cheers.